and welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but lately what I've been doing is a shitload of, I guess, multi-part mega-series. Maybe that's the best way to put it. And what I'm supposed to be talking about right now, technically, is the X-Men Age of Apocalypse storyline, but for reasons that maybe I can just get into some other time, this is just not the moment for me to be talking about that stuff. It's just, like, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that's really neither here nor there as far as this podcast is concerned. It's just, it's just going to have to wait, I guess is the point. So, something's got to fill the void, so... What I decided to do was turn this episode into another of my shoot the shit episodes and Michael Bailey, the uh, host and founder of Views from the Long Box and the co-host and co-founder of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which you can find at supermanhomepage.com. He uh, graciously agreed to appear in this episode and just kind of hang around, shoot the bull, and just talk about stuff. So that's what he and I are going to be doing. And so here you go. Here's the rest of the episode. It's basically going to be picking up an, on my conversation with Michael in progress. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Well, that's, that's kind of why I invited, uh, I, I had Paul, when Paul wanted to do the uh, Traveling Wilburys. I go, look, if we talk about a Bob Dylan project and we don't invite Rob Kelly, uh, he's not going to say anything, but I think that might put him out. So that turned into a fun episode. I, I enjoyed that. I kind of enjoy talking about music because it's out of my comfort zone. Like the fact that the Meatloaf episode I did with Middleton turned out as well as it did. Mm-hmm. Kind of shocked the hell out of me. Now, to be fair, I had like a shitload of research that I, well, by research, I watched a bunch of stuff, but still, that's, that's <laughs> doing research, you know, you're getting, you're, you're getting information, and it's funny, because I've had this DVD for years that I found at Walmart for, like, five bucks, that was, remember when they put out, like, those 20th Century Masters CDs, which were basically an excuse to do greatest hits albums with whatever, uh, Walmart had a bunch of them, uh, they did, like, Kiss, and it was like it was like all kinds of bands. It was like you can do Kiss or John Denver. It's, well, it's like wow, that's okay. Uh, that's but, kind of eclectic, yeah. <laughs> but they had done a DVD where they interviewed Todd Rundgren and Jim Steinman and Meatloaf and, and Ellen Foley and Carla DeVito and all the people who were involved with Bad Out of Hell one way or the other. And it was just like this treasure trove of information about how the show, how that album was put together. So um, I just, you know, it's like music is something I've always felt like I should know more about Mm -hmm. or a boot if I was Canadian. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, just, I'm not a Renaissance man and it took me about 10 years to figure that out. So, I mean, some people can be Renaissance people. It's like, well, I game and I, you know, I play video games and I watch all the TV shows and I read the right comics and stuff. And I'm just like, look, I just want to focus on one thing at a time. Is that okay, please? 
<laughs> I mean, do, do I have to? Okay. And it's just like, the, the, the shitty thing about it is that it, in, in the world where I am supposed to feel most at home, it makes me feel uncomfortable. So it's just like kind of shitty. When you think about it, it's just like, wait, am I sp- I'm supposed to like everything? I thought the whole thing, okay, whatever you guys want. I'll just be over here reading my comics and well, recording my shows. I need my stories. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, it, it's kind of funny that I've kind of noticed something similar to all of this. You know, the I guess the high schoolization of fandom. <laughs> you know, and I don't mean That's that. A good way to put it. <laughs> well, I, and I don't mean that in terms of the level of maturity. Mm-hmm. Although, but um, more that, like high school, as far as I can tell. And I and I mean this very literally. High school is I, I'm pretty sure that's the only time and the only place in life you'll ever find where you are expected to be good at literally everything, and you yeah. will be held in absolute fucking moral contempt if you're not. Which is, let's face it, that's like 98% of us. And so, but over the course of I want to say maybe it's been like the past 10 or so years. It's become less and less okay to just be a film buff or to be a comic book enthusiast or just or whatever whatever your shtick is. Now, it's like you have to enjoy everything. And you know what? I mean, I enjoy comic book films. I really like them. I get a tremendous kick out of them. I'm enjoying this kind of golden era that we're going through right now. But I got to tell you, dude, I've never really considered myself to be like a big film buff and prosecutions exhibit a on that is was and will always be citizen Kane. Cause I just don't fucking get it. I mean, I'm sure there's a, there's an amazing film in there somewhere that I'm just not seeing like everything else that everything that like everybody else is seeing. I'm, I'm not, you know? And what I've come to understand is that, you know what? You, you talk about it sometimes, you know, the contextualization of a comic book, you need to understand yeah. the time and the place in which it came out. Watchmen is not going to be as important a comic book today after what's it been like 30 odd years of it will be 30 it's 30 years this year as a matter of fact yeah after like 30 years of comics that have been in some way or another influenced by Watchmen to go back and read what started in some ways arguably the the modern comic book movement it's not going to hit the same way now as it would if you read it and say 1986 or really close to when it first came out, you know, when you can kind of get the game changer effect of it. Same thing holds true, I should imagine, for Citizen Kane. And so I think that you and I are of a generation where it's okay to feel that way. But, you know, I mean, even that is kind of a film buff argument. How about just saying, I don't fucking like it. It's a boring movie. I just I I keep waiting for, like, the cool part and it never fucking happens. (laughs) And it's ugh. but, you know. In the next couple of weeks, actually, um, this was all pre-long play, all right? This was I, – I was planning to do this on my own, and so because of that, I've decided I'm just going to run with this little mini-series, this occasional thing I'm going to be doing. Basically, Tom Panarese is going to be joining me for a couple of episodes so that we can talk, at least to start with, about a couple of Smashing Pumpkins albums, and then we'll see what happens from there. Mm-hmm. And – that's going to be a little bit of a change of pace for my show because when I first started, I did a shitload of movie shows up front and then that kind of gave me stage fright 
And what I realized is I don't want to be thought of as the movie podcast because at the time Better in the Dark was a going concern and there were other movie podcasts. And I I didn't want to be that, you know. And so it's been like a lot of comics since then. And, you know, the reason for that is because there are so friggin many amazing comics out there that nobody's talking about that it's it, there, it's a very target rich environment. Whereas the minute you start talking about movies now, just to kind of not be a dick, you need to send somebody a message. Hey man, I was thinking about, talk- is that going to be a problem? No, good. All right. Then I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. And it's just a, it's a little bit more of a, of a pain in the nuts to talk about comic or sorry, um, movies than it is to talk about comics, but at least in our fraternity to talk about music there are very few among us that are talking about music on an ongoing basis. And so, again, it's a little bit more of a target-rich environment. Yeah, and, and Tom's a good guy to talk about Smashing Pumpkins with um, because I – it was one of those groups that just passed me by. I mean, I remember – I mean, you, you couldn't get away from them, uh, especially in 1979. Jesus, that was ubiquitous for most of the late 90s you know at least in the radio stations around here mm-hmm. I mean, it just seemed like at least once an hour you're going to hear that freaking song uh to the point where i never wanted to hear that song again it's just kind of funny that way but i i think you know when you when you talk about the the high school libization if i could pronounce that properly which i just didn't um and we could joke that maybe it's the junior high schoolization of, mm. of fandom at times but you know, I, it's funny because one of my one of my good friends uh, from when I moved first moved down to Georgia, uh, Ryan, he, he said to me once, he goes, you know, you make your really good friends outside of high school mm-hmm. because you're forced to be in high school. So you have to find people or just kind of just to survive almost, hmm. uh, which kind of makes it like prison in a certain extent. But just, you know, with a lot less, <clears throat> you know, bad stuff happening, maybe. I don't know. Possibly. Yeah. It depends on your circumstances. But I I think it's kind of funny that, you know, we're, if you are a fan, like, you know, what, what people would call a geek, I've, I've heard nerd used inappropriately to describe geeks. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big guy that there is a, there is a distinction there. You know, a nerd is to me more academic. I mean, it's not like they're better or worse. It just seems like they're just more focused on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, where geek is a more general term where you're into something that used to be outside the mainstream. But I think you can argue now that most of this stuff, I mean, when, when video games are a billion dollar industry, they're not outside the mainstream anymore. Yeah. You know, when there's, Literally, in the, there's a shopping center in Fayetteville called the Fayette Pavilion. It was one of these things that was built in the mid-90s. I don't know if you had them in Texas, where suddenly these giant shopping complexes would erupt mm-hmm. seemingly overnight. And they like had, you know, this one had a Home Depot and a Target and it has a Walmart. And Walmart was the arbiter of where Fayetteville ended uh, because <laughs> it used to be, when I first moved down here, right in the middle of Fayetteville was the Walmart. Now... The, that was actually my first job down here. Mm-hmm. That Walmart moved down to the pavilion, so the border of Fayetteville seemingly moved with it. To the point, to the point where the actual end of Fayetteville was this little shopping center that had a JNR clothing mm-hmm. that moved up to where the, to be closer to the Walmart. So Walmart really in Fayetteville is this like black hole or this gravitational <laughs> force. 
And uh, the funny thing is, is that 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 um, that Walmart for the longest time it, it became a Hobby Lobby, mm-hmm. and then the Hobby Lobby moved closer to the Walmart, and it became, of all things, a flea market. Which I kind of regret never going to because what in the hell would a flea market in Fayetteville be like? You know, am I going to walk in there and it's because because what I what I pictured in my mind, mm-hmm. having been to a few flea markets, but especially th- considering this area was a bunch of sketchy <clears throat> people selling like knives. And there'd be like a couple people selling, you know, like, you know, their, their wood carvings and stuff like that. And there'd. I, I never heard that there was a comic thing in there, which kind of depressed me because, you know, one of the great things about going to the flea market is that there was always a booth with a dude was selling comics. Oh, uh, yeah. And I remember those days, yeah. And sometimes you found some really cool shit there, too. But um, mm-hmm. now it is an Ollie's, uh, which is a discount store, mm-hmm. and it's one of the most depressing places ever. <laughs> but, but, um,. <laughs> But it's just, it, it just, you know, when, when, when in the Fayette Pavilion, there are two game stops. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's that, mainstream. <laughs> that that's mainstream. I'm sorry, there, there is no you're a nerd for playing video games anymore. Everyone freaking does it. I mean, my wife, my wife's more of a gamer than I am, which mm-hmm. amuses everybody because they assume that because, which should piss me off, but it doesn't. They're like, well, well, you don't play video games, like, you know, what you fuck sheep. I mean, it's just like, I, 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 am I'm, I'm kind of sick of that, but <laughs> gee, I can't imagine why. <laughs> but you know, with the Marvel movies being so mainstream, and you know, you walk into Walmart or Target or anywhere, and there is comic book stuff mm-hmm. in the clothing section, and like, you know, your your you know, like freaking bath towels and stuff. I mean, it's ubiquitous now. And I don't know how long that's going to last. And I'm going to kind of hold on to it as long as I can, because I'm kind of excited that, you know, that I can go into a Target and literally walk into just about every department, including women's underwear, Mm -hmm. and Mm. see something with like the Superman or the Batman symbol on it. But what I think it's done is that compounded with a younger generation who I'm not criticizing, but they have less of an attention span than we did. Yeah. And our attention span was like, you know, to, to quote Dennis Miller, a ferret on a double espresso. So with that, it's almost like you, you have to be into like a thousand different things because your interest is constantly being pulled. Like you're a man, like, like a magpie or something. And it's frustrating because it's just like, cosplay is a good example of that. I love cosplay. I love seeing the costumes. Dragon Con is like, you know, freaking Mardi Gras for cosplay. Mm. Um, yeah, that's what I hear. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing to go from when we first started going in like 2001, where you would see costumes and stuff to now it's like one of the reasons to go. I mean, uh, my wife and I were in a formal business setting uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, dealing with something uh, to do with her accident. And one of the guys in the suits is just like, oh, yeah, me and my daughter go down and we look at the costumes and we go to the parade. And it's just like, <laughs> like this dude is talking about Dragon Con. Whereas in 2001, when I was getting ready to go to my first Dragon Con, I'm listening to the morning show. Uh, we have these DJs down here named Steve and Vicky. Mm-hmm. 
they were the vanilla white bread morning show duo for one of the biggest pop stations in Atlanta. Uh, so as you can imagine, their opinions of geek culture were pretty low and they were interviewing somebody, Mm -hmm. uh, who had this really nerdy voice and they were, and it was just basically like, I'm being, my people are being made fun of by morning DJs. There is something really wrong with what's going on right here. It's just on multiple levels. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas three years ago when we were driving in to check into our hotel, the DJ on one of the mainstream stations is like, Hey man, Dragon Con's this weekend. We want to welcome everybody coming in from Dragon Con. And what he was really saying is thank you for coming into Atlanta and spending a shitload of money out for four days. (laughs) We really appreciate that. (laughs) But it's just one of those things where with cosplay, it literally changed from me being at work going, yeah, I'm not going to be here next weekend. Oh, where are you going? Dragon Con. What's that? To, I'm not going to be here next weekend. Where are you going? Dragon Con. Oh, who are you dressing up as? Uh. And it's just like, and I've heard people be like, well, if you're not, be, I've heard people be like, because that's how I talk. Um, I've heard people say things, you know, and, I, and they're not, they're not being malicious, but it's just like, if you're not going to a convention in a costume, you're not dressed. And I'm just like, really, is that where we are? Because I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking what you're saying like too personal. But what if I choose not to? Am I not, you know, like, and and then you get into that, you fall into that hole. And I think I'm going to ask if you've experienced this, and it's it's a phenomenon that that actually has a name, but I completely forget what it is. Is where you're you're talking about something, mm-hmm. and. You could be talking about the most obscure thing, which is like, well, I don't like that. Somebody out there is going to contact you and say, well, I like that. <clears throat> and just, so I don't want to be that person that, was that, 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 that takes kind of, quote unquote, offense. But at the same time, is that where we are at in our culture where – because I'm not dressing up, I'm not one of the cool kids. I mean, is that what it is? Or, or, or is it that person simply expressing their personal opinion that they feel if they don't go in costume, they're not dressed for the party? <clears throat> well, my observation is that, you know, you and I kind of come from very similar backgrounds in a lot of ways. And that the time, the time in which we grew up, it, it, and it's kind of funny to think how much things have changed, but you know, the time in which we grew up, to say that you're a geek, your existence, you could kind of compare it in a weird kind of way to growing up gay, where you're different from somebody else or most other people in a very fundamental way. And so as a result, there's an entire segment of society that you're sort of isolated from, you know? Mm-hmm. Just by fact of birth. And what I mean, I, and it's kind of weird to think, you know, times are so much more tolerant about both of those things now. But at least at the time that you and I were coming up, you know, there were people who kind of had to suffer in order to be part of both of those. Right. Mm-hmm. And right now, the people who are adults, for the most part, in this in this movement came up in a time and a place when 
you know, you didn't get to just like the Avengers for free. If you were a fan of the Avengers, even at the LCS, you might have to justify that. You know, yeah. certainly outside of that, you know, people are going to look at you like a monkey doing a math problem. What What the fuck are the event? You mean the 60s TV show? You like that? And or or, or that you're big into Spider-Man or you like Batman or, or, or whatever, you know, and whatever your whatever your shtick was. And, you know, people and I mean, I, I speak here of the mainstream would kind of look down their their nose at you and. You were sort of, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say a pariah, but you were, it was a matter of almost democratic consensus that you were other, you were different. And it's only a hop, skip and a jump away from that to unwelcome. And I think what you and I are experiencing is people who went through that when they were growing up and maybe didn't take the right lessons from it. And so now it take this the way I mean it, it is a little bit of a gay pride parade where this, even now, I mean, there's an entire group of gay people out there. And uh, I would say at least half of a generation, if not more, who grew up in the closet and, you know, I guess their legacy or not their legacy, their heritage is what's his name, Matthew Shepard and people like that. That's what they inherited. And, it's I this uh, a gay pride parade could be the only time ever that they feel welcome, you know, that they're they're accepted and they're part of something. And I think on the comic book side, just to kind of move away from that comparison, I think what may be happening right now, because I've seen that myself and it's there's a sort of a moral judgment there that's being made. You know, you're not in your gear. And so you're not truly part of it. And I think that's basically somebody expressing an opinion. You know, this is this, the react, the sheer existence of cons and stuff is how I fucking got through high school. Okay. Yeah. And you're not taking this seriously whenever you show up just wearing jeans and a t-shirt. You know, and I've noticed a certain amount of suspicion, and this is a very recent thing, but a certain amount of suspicion, either to prove your cred and that, you know, nobody likes an interloper or to to kind of demonstrate your solidarity where you truly are one of us if you wear this. And, you know, look, the reality is, I mean, I'm a medium height, medium build ginger. There are just not very many outfits I can wear that are going to be topically appropriate. I mean, I've got basically, I've got my choice. I can be Rick Grimes. I can be Commissioner Gordon, Daredevil, or Guy Gardner. Those are my choices. Or Waldo. You pulled Waldo off rather well. Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, I was thinking more comics, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't know if I want to do that again. That was, uh... (laughs) there was this chick who was all, who was um, dolled up like um, Ms. Marvel. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I want to be careful how I say this because, man, this chick was fine, right? She mm-hmm. was hot. But I've got this thing about strangers, and I, I just don't like strangers, especially a really strange bunch of strangers. And, you know, Stacy wasn't there, and so I don't know if it 
necessarily dawned on her that, you know, I am kind of committed to somebody. But there is a kind of a meat market aspect to some of these cosplay things where, you know, well, I'll spare you the details, but it's just I've seen things and I've heard things and there's a lot of fucking that goes on at those cons. All right. Don't well, hate yourself. When I referred to Dragon Con as 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 cosplay Mardi Gras, it's it's basically to to a certain number of people, Comic Con is the prom, and Dragon Con is Mardi Gras. Ah, so well. and and the best example of that was I'm sitting there in the lobby of one of the hotels. Rachel and I are waiting for somebody, and there's this uh, this girl dressed like Lilu from um hell yes is that movie called i can't remember fifth element fifth element and there was these kind of uh, i'm going to use a pejorative here josh douchebags Mm -hmm. uh which kind of proliferate dragon con they they they, they, i haven't seen them in as many as in in recent years but it seemed like for a while there there was this frat boy pack and there were different guys every year but they would just come to get pictures taken and stuff and one of them picked her up and she leaned back like all the way because she was getting into character and that is just when i turned my head and her top ducked down so both of her breasts were exposed and i was just like oh that's interesting (laughs) wow so yeah shit happens weird shit happens well it doesn't and she was like rubbing on me you know good lord and you know i mean look i don't exactly have like a chiseled body or anything like that i mean there's not a whole lot uh, like if you're like touching my stomach and stuff there's just not a whole lot at least in those at at that time there just wasn't really anything much there to rub and she was just like touching and she said okay well we need to get a picture together and she was using the phone sex voice and everything and i'm just thinking oh my god i'm gonna have a panic attack if i don't (laughs) get out of here like now did you need an adult yeah and (laughs) Like, you know, I mean, look, I went to college, okay? I'm very well familiar with this this, this scenario where you're you're not just being hit on. You're being very blatantly hit on. And so I'm, I'm familiar with that. I certainly went through that. But, I mean, my God, man, you know, this is, you know, a lot of things have changed since then. And, you know, the thing is, I've never known how to tell Stacy about that. So I just haven't. <laughs> But, you know, there's a reason I haven't gone to a whole lot of cons since then, you know, and but it's the thing about it that that kind of stood out in my memory was I met the same girl, right? The same uh, Ms. Marvel chick. I met her. Well, met her. I didn't like meet her, meet her, but I bumped into her exactly seven days before that. Some friends of mine, we went to uh, we went to a, a Wizard World in Dallas and, you know, she, let's face it, she's going to turn heads. I mean, I'm sure if you look through my Facebook, you'll probably see the picture of me dressed up like Waldo, and then you'll see me with Miss Marvel. Well, the weekend before that, she was at Wizard World in Dallas, and she was coming in through the door, and this being Texas, you know, she was right behind me, so I just held the door open for her. And I was wearing my, I think I was wearing just jeans and a Batman t-shirt. Nothing special, right? And... Mm-hmm. You know, she stood out in my memory, obviously, but I did not stand out in hers. Exactly. Seven days later, only thing that's changed is my wardrobe. Now she's feeling and touching and almost groping. And 
it's just it's a weird fucked up kind of experience. And I thought, you know, when you compared it to Mardi Gras, I was thinking that that's exactly what this is, you know, and there are negative manifestations. Of that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it, the, the thing I like, though, is that we, uh, you know, when we go to Dragon Con and now I've, I've kind of, uh, you know, that's that's where I met Shag. Uh-huh. Uh, so every year except one year uh, since, you know, 2005, yes, 2005, uh, you know, one of the reasons to go to Dragon, Dragon Con is that Shag and I are going to get to hang out a little bit. Hmm. And now I found like a, a, a little group to be a part of uh, who have accepted me, which, uh, which is always weird for me because it, here's something that I am having to deal with. And it's very strange. When when I was in high school, I had like a large group of friends, uh, and we were all into various things. I was the only comic book person, really, but you know we all liked things in common. I remember senior year going over to my friend Amy's house to watch the season premiere of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Mm. You know, it, there was social things like that, and I had like a group down here when I first moved down to Georgia. There was like three or four of us that, you know, I, I hung out with a larger group. And it was the first time I really ever hung out with guys. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. most of my friends in high school were women. Mm-hmm. And it's, and, 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 and it's I, I don't want to say this is where I learned why I didn't hang out with a large group of guys. Because some of them were, <laughs> some of them were just, there's one dude that literally looked at me one day and said, now, Mike, I know you like Superman and all, and he's cool, and I respect him, but I like the Silver Surfer because he's really strong and he can kick a lot of ass. <laughs> and I'm just like, this is your takeaway from the Silver Surfer. That's he's an interesting... Really... <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting view. <laughs> but, you know, eventually I had, like, this this kind of smaller group, and that's who I hung out with. That's, you know, my friend Ryan and I, for, like, three years, did everything together, almost. Uh, like, every Friday night, we were at the comic shop and then either going and get some eat or going and watching a movie or like for a solid month, we would drive up to this uh, theater in, in Atlanta to, 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 which is a nicer theater to go see a movie. That's where I saw starship troopers and LA confidential and stuff like that. But in all of those situations, I always felt like, and I realize now that most of this was me and most of this was being, you know, like in my early twenties and not having everything figured out yet. Mm-hmm. I always felt like, the least popular member of the group. And now everyone's kind of on equal footing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that there is a upper echelon of our community, uh, especially the people we hang out with. Every, everyone is pretty equal. You know, we can, no one feels like I can't talk to that person, you know, and, or at least I, I hope not. And what I'm coming to terms with is that, it's not like, oh, suddenly I'm the pretty girl at the party, but more of, oh, I'm not the least popular member. We're all kind of equal here. That's really weird for me. <laughs> so, and, you know, I, I, you know, turning 40, just because of the shit, you know, we as humans love to divide things by 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you, I can't get that out of my head. So I've been kind of taking stock of things because now I'm head, heading into middle age, even though I still feel like I'm 23. Sometimes, uh, my body reminds me I'm not, uh, 
sometimes on a daily basis, it reminds me, hey, <laughs> dude, you don't get over being sick as as fast as you did, and you can't work 16 days in a row and, and not feel like, you know, hammered ass at the end of it. But it's just really kind of funny to me that now, you know, with these these groups that I've become a part of, I I'm always like feeling like I should be standing in the back of the room, but I know that's not the case. And I know that sounds weird, but it's something that I've quote unquote struggled with uh, because I'm not used to it. Uh, I mean, it's just like it's it's kind of weird because for a while there, you know, when Rachel and I were first together, about three years into our relationship, she shattered her ankle. So we were like insular for six months and my friends group never really recovered from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a bunch of shit that went down between people because we were all in our early twenties and stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's when it happens. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. I was, I was, I was talking with professor Allen last week, actually a week ago today, uh, as we were hanging out, which was a lot of fun. Professor Allen's one of the nicest guys ever. Yes, he is. He's awesome. Uh, and that translates into real life. But I was just like, you know, hearing some of the younger podcasters, I'm just like, you know, part of me feels like, you know, get off my lawn. You know, you kids don't know anything. But at the other hand, I'm like, just let them figure it out. You know, <laughs> there is nothing worse that you can do as an older person than to tell a younger person how it is, because they've got to figure that shit out on their own. Um, or maybe I should, maybe we should be like the dads, but who wants to be the dad in the room, you know? Cause I don't think any of us feels our age at this point. No. Well, there was this line from, I don't know if you ever saw it, but the people versus George Lucas, there was this line that's kind of stuck with me where this kind of hipster looking dude, uh, who I guess is a lot older than he actually looks what he says. Uh, he he's he's joking, but you know what? I think there's a lot of truth to it. He says, "Look, there's no way that George Lucas ruined your childhood because you're still fucking in it." <laughs> and the more I thought about it, you know, there is something to be said for this this strange retrogression that I don't think is unique to our generation, but I think we've kind of turned it into a science. Yeah, I'll agree with that. You can pay your mortgage on the one hand and then go collect action figures on the other, and there is no conflict between the two. And you, Or if there is, you don't see it. Well, you know... And I'm not saying there should be. I'm just saying that historically, that's not really the norm, you know? Well, because for the longest time, our main concern was, you know, eating. And, and, you know, when you're when you're a mostly agrarian society, doing things like collecting action figures isn't in the isn't in the cards because one, no one's producing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, you're more concerned about the day to day needs of, of the hunt. You know, <laughs> I, I used to joke the reason why I think some of us collect things is because we can go to McDonald's to eat lunch. And that primitive hunter-gatherer instinct is still there, so we fill it somehow. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I think, you know, for at least two generations before us, it was Corinthians 1311. You know, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I put away the, the ways of childhood behind me, or whatever version of that, um, uh, you know, that part of the Bible comes from. Uh, I like the spake 
mainly because I like when people say the word spake as the uh, past, past tense, tense of speak. speak yeah, um, that's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, we are we are the children. You and I are the children of the baby boomers. And at some point, you know, the, the baby boomers, <laughs> most of a lot of them died during Vietnam, sadly. But, you know, that generation grew up. And then at one point realized, I still like this stuff when I was a kid. And so we learned that lesson. And some of us never let go. And now not letting go is the norm. You know, there, you know when, when I hear people tell stories, and it's just something I can't relate to, so it's not a judgment call, but it's just like, yeah, man, at one point I put away comics because of girls. I'm just like, you know what? I got laid and read, read comics in high school. Now... I wasn't like hitting it every week, but I managed to get it done. So I proved that even my low self-esteem ass, uh, who was a bit overweight could kind of find female companionship here and there, you know, it was possible. So I just, I just never understood that. But now it seems like the transition from high school into college, into real life and keeping on to your stuff. It seems like the story goes, uh, when I was, 14 i discovered girls so i'm gonna give up comics went from man when i was 22 i was out of college and i didn't have any money so i couldn't buy any comics so yeah that's a little bit more than norm so it's not it's not i grew out of it it's i can't afford this which is two completely different mindsets in my opinion well and i i well, I mean, what what can I really say? I mean, I, I I definitely agree with that. But I mean, keep in mind, you know, you're talking to the guy that bought Adventures of Superman number 560 the day before he lost his virginity. <laughs> so to me, I mean, I agree with you. There is this sort of artificial con, uh, I don't know, conflict between the two to wh- well, fuck it. We probably need to get into the show, but um. I thought right. we were there. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. I didn't want to be presumptuous and just say, well, you know, we probably need to get recording. And, you know, I mean, because for all I know, this was all hot mic stuff for you. So if you want me to use beyond like past that certain point that you said, don't <laughs> this is not for public consumption. If you want me to use the stuff after that is just sort of the fade in for the show. I can do that. <laughs> That'll be fine. All right, cool. Well, it's just I mean, I went out and and, and I wasn't, you know, hardcore collecting yeah, comics at the time. Mostly because, you know, my my home life had had I'm not saying this to, you know, criticize my parents or anything, but they never really got on board with my collecting comics. There was a there was a time when they tolerated it. And then they stopped tolerating it, you know, Mm -hmm. and so as a result of that, you know, I wasn't really able to. I wasn't able to, you know, buy necessarily the comics that I wanted to buy. I mean, there's a reason I wasn't really able to get into the Legion of Superheroes until I was an adult or or trying to think expand more into the Marvel universe than I was able to as a kid until I was an adult. You know, there's a there's a reason a lot of this happened when I was an adult. It wasn't necessarily, you know, burgeoning adulthood. It was, you know, uh reaching really the end of my parents' tolerance and I'm not saying that to criticize them because they love me and I love them. They were just making a parenting decision and I believe it was the wrong one, but they were still making it, you know? And, you know, I know that people, it's kind of a cute little quip that people say, you know, 
uh, I, you know, the minute my balls dropped, I was only thinking about pussy, you know, pussy, man, you know, blah, blah, blah. and, you know, comics apparently took a back seat. And I think number one, I mean, if you're not able to multitask, you know, dude, don't say that I've got a small attention span. But, you know, the other thing is it doesn't have to be one or the other. And maybe, you know, maybe yours and my generation was we were just the first to figure that out. I don't know. We were the tipping point. You know, we, and, it, we were it, where it became OK and it became OK in that. Is it OK? Oh, oh OK. It's OK. We're now it's just like, screw it. <laughs> well, and. You know, it does kind of make you wonder, you know, we came up at a time when, you know, comics became in ways that are both positive and negative, a bit more adult. And, you know, whereas I and now I'm blanking on the issue number, but there's a Bronze Age issue of Superman where I think you can pretty well infer that Clark and Lois bumped uglies at the end of the issue. Um. You took the super out of Superman story from uh, leading up to 300. That's 296 to 299. Yeah, I, I swear to think it was one of those. And, you know, you can very easily. I think you got a leg to stand on, put it that way. And so. That instead of being a, instead of being implicit, it, there were instances where it started becoming a little bit more explicit, like at the end of. Or not at the like I think it was actually the beginning of Adventures of Superman number five oh five. Superman and Lois just fucked each other's brains out. They were bouncing each other off the ceiling. There's really no two <laughs> ways about that. You know, I mean, you could see the bed was a total mess. They're they're both taking showers. I mean, we know what they did, guys. Come on. And it was it, there was this weird osmosis effect where you and I absorbed that and thought, oh. So I've got all of these long boxes and, you know, that that if I get enough of them, that can be kind of shaped like a bed. And I bet I could I bet I could bounce somebody off the ceiling that way. Yeah, I, I, I could try that. Sure. And there's less of a dichotomy, not to mention the fact that, you know what, girls are starting to get into this. now. I mean, say whatever you want about the creepy goth chick contingent that would show up at the LCS every month to pick up the new Sandman or Fables or whatever the thing was. Well, you know what? They they got needs too. <laughs> and 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 frankly, they're going to be more interesting, but that's only because I I married the the goth chick. So <laughs> Yes, you did. I uh, <laughs> it's it's really funny that the the that was always kind of the girl I would look at from afar when I was younger. And be like, ah, it's never gonna happen. To no, you're gonna marry that one day. <laughs> you're, you're gonna, you're gonna make that a regular thing. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, so you like witches, right? Yeah, I think they're kind of hot. Well, <laughs> congratulations. Everything's going to work out for you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, um, you know, there's a uh, speaking of which, there's a kind of a fascination with goth chicks, and that kind of that brings up something that I've. Eh, I'd, I'd be kind of interested to ask you about, you know, Ursa. Mm-hmm. Is she a goth chick? You know, that's a good question because she she kind of has the trappings of it. I mean, mm-hmm. she wears mostly black. She's got thigh high boots. She's oh, got kind of a uh, she's got kind of you know, depending on your your preference of, of goth chick. She's got kind of like the pixie haircut 
Oh yeah. Uh, dark eye makeup. Uh, now that may have just been more just because it showed up better on film. Um, yeah, keep this going. I like where this is going. Great. Now I'm talking to Christian Slater and um, pump up the volume. Perfect. Um, <laughs> but but no, it's just you know she she's attracted to the bad boy. Mm. Um, but you know it's not like we 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 can check out her iPod. And see if she's got like you know Susie and the Banshees on that or anything like that. So, yeah. but I, I would say yes. Uh, I, I will say she is the goth chick simply because if you look at the rest of that Krypton, she is the girl in black. Well, and I saw that that Superman movie, Superman Two. I saw that movie so friggin many times when i was a kid because for a long while there that was the only superman movie that we had in the house mm-hmm. and i was you know when you're a child i don't give a damn what anybody says i think that when you're a child barring you know unforeseen circumstances to be polite but barring unforeseen circumstances that's pretty much the time you start to imprint on whatever your type is or maybe not even what your type is, but something that you at least like, an aesthetic that you like. And the way I look at it is if you're watching a shitload of Superman 2 as a child and you're going to imprint on one of the women in this movie, pretty much you're kind of left with a choice between Sarah Douglas and Margot Kidder. And so under the circumstances, I'd like to think I chose well. Well, that... This is probably going to get me in trouble with. Oh, do it, do it, people. do it. I uh, I found Margot Kidder attractive for like five seconds in the Superman films, and I'm not one of these people that feels like Lois has to be attractive. Mm-hmm. But like when you compare her to, and I'm not even talking Terry Hatcher because you know Terry Hatcher was the most downloaded woman on the internet at one point. Okay. I picture her of her in the with the S and looking like she's naked under. I mean the cape, looking like she's naked underneath of it. And Apparently, I had at it, one bitch. point, yeah, one it was one of the most downloaded images on the internet back when the internet had like 16 people on it. Yep. Uh, you apparently were one of them, um, but you know when you compare her to like Phyllis Coates, who you know wore more when you think about it, you know, just with, with the conservative outfit, but you look at that, she's like, God, that's just a, such a much more attractive woman. And, and I think it really comes down to also as an adult, I don't really like her Lois Lane. Her Lois Lane is obnoxious and it's, she's dismissive of Clark in the first one, mm-hmm. which sadly Brian Singer said, yeah, that's how I should do it. Yeah. Um, and in the second one, which I think is, is, is one of my, my go-to points when I think of the relationship between Lois and Clark, they were friends in that one, but you also had the added caveat that she finds out who he is, so that kind of changes the whole dynamic. And in the fourth one, everyone was just kind of walking through their roles. So, you know, it's kind of funny when I think about it. I think one of the reasons why I've always kind of preferred Lana is that I liked how she treated Clark in Superman 3 better than Lois did. Well, so, you know what? This – it's – I'm not trying to trigger you with a microaggression, but, you know, I, I, until Smallville, I kind of was on – I was of this opinion where, you know what? 
I think that Lana is actually the better match for Superman. Like when you when you think about it, you know, and I mean this especially not just in the burn age, especially in the burn age, because this was somebody who was on the ground floor with Clark Mm -hmm. from the get go. And this is a character who in his inner core, people can uh, can agree or disagree with this. This characterization as much as they want. The only thing that matters is that John Byrne bought into it. This is a guy who in his core is always going to be Clark Kent, the kid from the farm. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I mean, I think there might, there might be like a brief moment of fascination with somebody like Lois. His heart is always going to belong to somebody like Lana. That's his history, you know? And, you know, the, especially at the time, the mythos kind of demanded that he end up with Lois, no matter how little sense that makes, if you don't characterize it properly. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, there. I, I, I'm not saying that to criticize Byrne. I'm not. I wouldn't. But there were certain realities of of his iteration of the uh, of Superman where I just look back and think, you know what? It sounded good at the time. I don't know. Yeah, Jeffrey uh, and I discovered, and it was kind of a surprise to both of us that after a while we didn't like Byrne's Lois. Yeah, and and that's only when you're really thinking about it. it. It's it's you know Andy Leyland and I have talked about this all the time. There's two ways we read comics now. It's either for fun, where we enjoy them a little more, but once you start having to analyze it, you know, as I am fond of saying, you can't do analysis without getting a little anal. That's true. And um, which John Wilson laughed at so hard when I said to him for the first time, I, 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 I thought he was going to choke. Um, <laughs> I'm going to put it on a t-shirt, I promise. But the, uh, but when you look at like his Lois, it's, it, you know, she's cold. Like, how are you attract? And, and this is my thing with, with Clark, with Superman falling in love with Lois. I need to, for my money, I need to look at those two together and go, how in the hell is he attracted to her? And it can't just be because, you know, because tradition, because history. There has got to be something that he responds to. And the moment Lois is shitty to Clark, that should immediately key him in that this is not a decent human being at heart. You know, and that is why the Lois and Clark Lois always bugged the crap out of me because in that first season, she did some extraordinarily petty shit to him. Mm-hmm. To the point, it's like, are you just attracted to her because she's kind of hot? I mean, <laughs> is is that what we're doing here? Because, you know, and, and, and to a certain extent, and I think this is what you were getting at, you know, when I look at the Lana on Smallville, Ugh. that is a completely different dynamic than Burn Lana and Clark. Because in Smallville... They're, they know each other, but I don't really get the sense that before we see them in their freshman year of high school, that they had a whole lot to do with each other. And there's the kind of the creepy thing of Clark checking her out with that telescope, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of messed up in that dynamic, like from the outset, so that when they when they get together, no matter what they did to that character, 
you know, and the, and the weird twists and turns. And, you know, we, <laughs> we both got to talk to Al Goff or however, you know, it's really funny. Two guys that helped shepherd in Smallville have names and last names that people constantly mispronounce because we look at it. We just don't know what to do with those letters. Um, <laughs> Everyone wants to call uh, Miles Mil- Miller Millar because it's spelled M-I-L-L-A-R, but it's pronounced Miller. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I, I don't even want to try Al's last name because I see that O-U-G-H together. And I'm like, how the fuck do you pronounce that? But, Off, baby. Off. <laughs> um, Off with a G. Uh, but uh, but he, he kind of hit it on the nail on the head. The dynamic there was based on the peculiarities of television, not so much how those characters... And I think I, I think that's something I forget sometimes, mm-hmm. that when I'm watching something and I'm looking at a narrative, there are forces imprinting itself on that narrative that I have no control over. So Lana and Clark getting together in the second season and then kind of breaking up and then having their, you know, will they, won't they thing... You know, in the third and fourth, I thought you were <laughs> when he said <laughs> quick digression last night when he said, I always kind of liked the fourth season. I literally knew you were cringing <laughs> behind your microphone. <laughs> I was just like, oh, Jesus, Trentus is listening. <laughs> um, it's true. Did you hear how surprised he was that you cover the show when I introduced you? Um, I. I got a a whiff of it, but I, you know, I mean, I pretty much hung up after, you know, the uh, conversation. I didn't really think about it too much. But, yeah, I was going to ask, you know, was that a, was that my imagination or did he seem like really taken aback? Yeah. When I introduced you and said that, he's like, oh, really? Like someone's talking about this? It's like, dude, do you not know what the Internet is? <laughs> well, and like the thing was, I mean, I thought about mentioning that because like the, the the promise I made to myself is that if I'm ever on Radio KAL Live, if one of the hosts wants to mention Hey, yeah, Trennis Magnus punches reality. It's a going concern. You can find it at blah, blah, blah. You know, look, if they want to mention that, fine. All right. But I'm not going to mention it. And so I didn't want to overwhelm him with, hey, man, this show is the greatest fucking Superman adaptation and live action that I've ever seen. I got to tell you, I was fucking skeptical at first, dude. I wanted to chase you down and skin you alive in the streets as a as an object lesson towards others. But I got to tell you, as this thing moved on, and it's like, what the fuck is he supposed to say to that? You know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that, that is that is the thing. I was I was wondering how it was going to go. It went very well. Um he seemed to laugh at the 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 um, the question about the Thanksgiving episode. Uh, he seemed quite <laughs> amused with. And then when uh, later in the episode, when I was talking, we were asking him about you know what he, you know, how does working on Smallville, how did that prepare you for like into the Badlands? And I made like well outside of you know like you know like Kung Fu Lana, and I heard this cackle on his end. I'm like. <laughs> Okay, this is going very well that I can say that and I'm not getting a you 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 need to go die, you know, type of vibe off of it. So he seemed just generally we were talking before the show actually started. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize and, and what I'm what I'm learning is that there are people out there that like the Superman homepage because in the early days of the internet, we were it when it came to Superman. Mm -hmm. And he said on the show, when he said before the show, you guys were one of the early people talking about us on the web. 
And I'm just like, and all I'm thinking is, please do not have read the reviews and confuse me with Neil Bailey. Not that Neil is a bad guy. I love Neil to death. But Neil ripped that show up every week. <laughs> so I didn't want to yeah. be like, oh, I'm talking to this guy. <laughs> well, you know what? Since we've uh, <laughs> introduced the subject, I got to tell you, I've talked around Neil quite a few times <laughs> whenever I've done my, um, my retrospective, right? Because mm-hmm. like on the one hand, my attitude about it was I can't not talk about it, but then, you know, I don't want anyone who listens to my show to be to, or at least perceive that they're in they're they're being put in a situation where they have to choose sides. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't talked about it, but I, I'm just going to say it. I do believe he was extremely unfair to that show, especially beginning in the fifth season and then just going forward. I there's a thing that's called reason, and I don't think there was much of that in his reviews. Look, I mean, if you're going to be unfair to Smallville in the dreaded fourth season, who the fuck is going to notice, you know? But starting in the fifth season when things legitimately did get better, yeah, I don't know. And, you know, there there came a point when he he got to the end of, I want to say it was the eighth season, and... He started tallying up, you know, averages, but he didn't give an average rating to the season. You know, he would usually do that at the end of every season. You know, this is how this season ranks overall. And you can see that the numbers are going down. Well, he didn't do that at the end of the eighth season. And one of the things that I noticed whenever I did his math for him is that maybe the reason he didn't do that is because the number truly did go back up by his own his own numbers. And I don't I mean, I'm look, I'm not trying to, you know, bother you or shit talk a friend of yours or anything, but I I really don't think he was fair to that show, like I say, starting from the fifth season going forward. So the bulk of the bulk of the show, I would say. There is a there is a certain there is a certain segment of 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 the Superman fandom specifically that and I'm friends with these guys, so I'm not shit-talking them anyways, because I can disagree with my friends and still like them as people. You know, just, just because you look at something differently than I do doesn't mean that I'm going to hate you and, you know, like you said, skin you alive as a warning to the others. Um, but I, I think there's—I think there are people out there that when they're judging something— you have to give yourself an aggregate. You have to give yourself parameters. Mm-hmm. Like, I am judging it based on this. And I always felt that some of their criticisms were not taking in the larger picture of what it is. They wanted, and I kind of hinted at this before, they wanted what they were watching to be something other than it is. Yes. And as much as Smallville was a TV show about Clark Kent learning to become Superman. It was also a network TV show on a channel where the demographics were like 12 to 30. Yes. And mostly female. Yes. You know, and Smallville had a large male demographic, which is why that show stuck around as long as it did. And if you were going to look at that show and judge it purely as well, this is the story of Superman, or this is a story, you are not taking into account, to my mind, the fact that it is a network show and there are forces at work that we will never know about 
you know, behind the scenes. I mean, you know, when you, the more I talk to people behind the scenes of stuff, the more I see how the sausage is made, Mm -hmm. the more uh, it's just like one, two punch of it. It kind of takes the fun out of it. You know, suddenly, you know, Santa Claus isn't real, Mm -hmm. but it also makes me kind of respect the material more like, holy shit, look what they produced under these circumstances, you know, and with Smallville, yes, you know, when you look at like the, the, the mid seasons in particular, there were a lot of inconsistencies in ter- or perceived inconsistencies, but that's just because, you know, the show was changing. The show was morphing. You know, it was easy. It was easy to keep things consistent when Clark's in high school because you have static sets and you have, you know, dynamics that, that are at play all through high school and they fought against that. Lana's a good example of that. Who the fuck is giving a 16-year-old running a coffee shop and then living in an apartment above it? You know? Nobody. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to do that. Yeah. Nobody. But at the same time, you always knew that one person in school that was a little more adult than everybody else. I don't think Lana was it because, God, she was a petulant little girl. Yes, she was. <laughs> but, you know, when I when I look at how they review it, I go, okay, that's that's your opinion. I just don't see it that way. You know, I, I, you know, and I'm sure there are people out there that have read my reviews and go, dude, what the hell is wrong with you? I enjoyed this. And I, I guess the key there is to is, is for me anyways, is to not get caught up in it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Scotty V, who I love, uh, is another guy that just it's like they're coming at it purely from a writing standpoint. Mm hmm and what their perceptions of what good writing is. And if it falls outside of those boundaries, suddenly it's not good, but not everything can be written the same way. You can't write an episode of Smallville the same way you would write an episode of all my children. You know, they're both going to have romantic entanglements and twists and turns, but they're two different types of television shows. There's a difference between a daily one hour drama and a weekly show that is trying to tell an overarching story. Well, you know, the way I always kind of rationalized it is if you sat down and got in on the ground floor of the X-Files, that story can go anywhere and do anything. Like if you just, if you know nothing at all about the show and you just started watching it when it was, you know, beginning with the pilot, when that first came on, and then you followed the show through to the end or the bitter end, as the case may be, you know, you don't necessarily know where the story's going to wind up and how things are going to play out. Or same thing even really with Buffy, all five seasons. Some people say seven seasons. I'm not aware of any sixth or seventh <laughs> season of Buffy. I only know about five seasons. And, the you know, that show... Who expected that show to end the way that it did in the fifth season? Because that's when it ended, when Buffy died. You know, who who was expecting that? You know, you wouldn't necessarily know that's that's where things were going to go. But Smallville wore its conclusion on its sleeve and at times would dangle it in front of the viewer and then kind of snatch it away. And there's a breed of fan out there that gets off on that in ways that may not be totally psychologically healthy. And then there's another fan, another breed of fan out there who kind of regards that as being a little bit the ultimate cock tease where you're, 
you know, they made this concept of Brainiac a viable commodity in live action. And in at least in 1998, who among us thought that was even possible? Mm-hmm. You know? But it happened. Or they made maybe less wise choices at times, but they basically they they developed this incredible I would say variation on the Superman myth. And they they there are certain things that are peculiar to Smallville that I really enjoy. You know, the history between, you know, the Ross and the Luther family and stuff like mm-hmm. that stuff that I that I really dig. I think is really creative and just insightful. It's it's an insightful approach to the material, you know? And they regard this as being a little bit like 10 seasons of the first maybe 30 minutes of the first Star Wars movie where all we see is Luke Skywalker running around on a farm. And then it ends with him meeting Ben Kenobi. And I don't think there are very many people out there who want to watch that show. But then there is that breed of fan out there who would, that's kind of their end all be all. And I guess, you know, it's okay to not like what Smallville is. I don't think it's okay to hate it because of something it never tried to be in the first place. Yeah, and that that's something I struggled with, and I and I'm going to be completely honest with that. It, it's like one of those one of those moments where I really want to go back to my younger self and kind of shake the shit out of myself for about five minutes and give myself a good slap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I think you know you this is how you learn. And I'm and I'm 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 admittedly slower on the uptake than some people. But <laughs> what, what I realized the moment the last episode aired, like all of these problems I had with Smallville melted away. Mm-hmm. And I realized because it got to the moment that I was waiting for. But when I really started thinking about that, I started thinking how unfair I was being to a show that was successful. You know, there is this this thing amongst fans uh, and I'm not trying to shit talk our people, but and I, and I'm definitely not going to be one of those people that tries to police, you know, the group because one, that guy always looks like an asshole, and yeah. two, I've got real shit in my life to deal with. So, <laughs> you know, what happens online really, you know, I'm not saying it stays online, but really at the end of the day, I'm just like, you know, I've got I've got a wife, I've got three dogs, I've got a job. This is supposed to be fun. Yeah. But it, it, it and I was as guilty of this as anybody. So I am not trying to get on my high horse here. But there was this breed that was just like hated the show, like you said, for what it wasn't. And, you know, as as I learned last night, they were only thinking the show would go about five years. Yeah. And to a certain extent, if it had ended in season four. Um, I, I think that was a natural ending to that part of the story, but then they're like, nope, you're going on. So what do you do? You dance, you dance until you can't dance no more. And they were on, you know, Alan miles were on that show for seven seasons. And in that seven seasons, you had two, almost two separate shows, really. You had the high school years and then the three years after high school or, or yeah, the, the three seasons after high school. Yes. And, and, and it's really funny when I look at my DVDs on the wall, because I bought them pretty much as they came out, those DVD box sets kind of line up that way too. Yes, they do. 
it's, <laughs> I'm just, I was looking at the other day going, that's weird. But, you know, and now when you buy season one of Smallville, it looks like season 10. So yeah, they got the uniform box type. Yeah. Which is funny when I, when I took a picture, someone's like, why does your, I took a picture of it and posted on Facebook. And someone's like, why does your thing of Smallville look like that? I go, because I was there the day it came out to buy it. <laughs> Cause I was so excited that it was coming out on DVD. <laughs> and well, I, uh, I have a question. I haven't listened to the, uh, all I heard was like basically a few minutes before that episode of radio KAL live. All I heard was basically a few minutes before you, you brought me in. Mm-hmm. And then I, exited after i finished uh talking myself because there were just other things i needed to do did he actually talk about um you know the fact that for because uh, i've got a theory actually about seasons six and uh the sainted season seven that i'm kind of curious did did he acknowledge did he actually talk about yeah we had to just create those things out of whole cloth or what it, it was an interesting uh it's funny because when I'm involved in something, I, I seldom remember exactly what was said. So I, I need to go back and listen to it. But it it seemed like around season four and five, there was a complete demographic change, uh, I mean, a complete regime change up top. Yep. And the new president of Warner Brothers Television really liked Smallville. So I think there was probably a change on that. But, you know, the, the other and it kind of, and this actually kind of dovetails into another point I was going to make about the, the the fandom when Smallville was on, was everyone was like these people don't like Superman, yeah. and you know if you if you look at it from a certain from a certain standpoint, you you know an argument can be made from that, but in listening to this guy talk about it, they were championing things about Superman's mythology when the movie division was trying to get away from it. You know, he he talked about having an argument with the guy, you know, that that was their liaison with DC at the time that why? Because when the the J.J. Abrams script was out there. Yeah. um, And, yeah, you can't judge a movie based on a script. But God damn, that script sucked. (laughs) Um, And McGee was going to direct it. You know, Krypton was going to stay unblowed up. Mm -hmm. And apparently... I got the sense that they were trying to trickle that down to Smallville. And his point was, how do you have a meteor shower when the planet doesn't blow up? (laughs) And he's like, why am I the guy arguing for the mythology? And I'm like, that must have been insane. (laughs) Like, you're the guy kind of twisting and turning the mythology to suit your own needs. And yet you're the one standing up as like the ultimate defender of it. of the comic books when yeah that must have been a weird day at work yeah i mean just seriously think about that for a second is that you know but the one thing you know for all the people that said oh they don't like it i got the sense that they you know talking to this guy that he liked it a lot but they were just doing something different and you know in in a couple days andy leyland and i are going to sit down and talk about superman for all seasons uh so i'm reading that again for the first time in years. Mm-hmm. And when they say that, it, that Smallville was influenced by Superman for all seasons, Jesus Christ, I forgot how much it was influenced by that story. Yeah. Um, just in, in the tone, especially Jonathan Kent, but it's kind of funny in talking to this guy, I got a sense that this was a guy that really liked Superman, but just wasn't going to put him in the costume because that wasn't the story they were telling. And it's not his fault 
And it's not Tom Welling's fault. And it's not anybody who was responsible for that show's fault that that show went 10 years. It's our fault because we watched it. And I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, well, Smallville needs to be the ultimate defender because there's some Smallville fans that need to kind of SDFU, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, people... and you know what? The, the thing is, they're less vocal now. I'll, I'll give them that. They're, they're mm. kind of like the Nolan Batman fans. They've sort of gone into hibernation. But, yeah, I agree with you. Our our sacred cow isn't there anymore, so we have nothing to to argue about. <laughs> well, like, really, the like the lone major exception to this – and. Typically, what I do is I, I try to abide by the Reagan doctrine. You know, when it comes to uh, the the two true freaks, I refuse. I stridently refuse to talk smack in public, or even really in private, about other members of the Two True Freaks podcast network. Because when you think about it, we're all on the same team anyway. Yeah. So that doesn't really make sense. We're a family. We can disagree amongst ourselves, but you don't shit talk the family outside of the family. No, you don't. But I feel absolutely at liberty to shit talk other people. And I got to tell you, one of the <laughs> ringleaders of this whole Nolan Batman hysteria, and this guy has not gone away. And unfortunately, I share a city, a home city with this fucking douchebag, is a Jet from Batman on film. And that guy has done more to be an obnoxious jackass about the Chris Nolan Batman films than any 12 people I can think of. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who just, as a matter of simple preference, they like the Nolan films maybe more than, say, the animated series or the the Burton Schumacher movies or, or what have you. That guy, though, is just fucking militant, you know? And he his, I mean, in everything except actually saying so out loud... His attitude seems to be, if it's not Nolan, it can fuck off and die in a fire. And that is a very unhealthy attitude for fandom to have, you know? Especially about something that's supposed to be so universal in the first place. And, I mean, I, you know, I, I basically what I'm trying to do is not say something that could get me arrested. But, I mean, it's just that guy's just a fucking dick, in my opinion, you know? And it's, it, it's that kind of mentality, I think, that... You, I. I don't think that fans should be tearing each other up. They certainly should not be tearing each other up over Superman and Batman. It's really that yeah. simple, you know? So there you go. Well, you know, it, it, it's that, and we're, I'm, I'm really girding myself. I don't know when this is going out, but I'm really girding myself for the next month and a half. Uh, because I have a feeling when this movie hits, it's going to get ugly. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be as ugly as 2013 because 2013 took everybody by surprise. I think mm -hmm. uh, I honestly think that the, the outcry against that film and, and what we got to realize is that that outcry is insular. And, and this is, I want to call it the message board phenomenon, even though message boards really aren't a thing anymore. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Um, Cause that used to be such a big part of the thing. But just because 10 people on a message board are saying something does not mean that is what all is of fandom is thinking. And I, and I think that a lot of people, when they, they take a position, I think sometimes they're doing it as a character almost. Like, this is what I'm known for, so this is what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't understand that. 
but you know, at the same time, I'm not going to tell somebody how to handle themselves online right. unless, you know, they're insulting my wife, in which case I want to beat the piss out of them with a tire iron. Um, well, I would hope that's never happened, but oh, Jesus, you don't know. <laughs> to be fair, Rachel gets in it with people and I've, but there have been a couple times where I've had to step in and go, no, <laughs> this ends now. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that we're all here because we love something. And I am not saying we all have to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and never criticize anything, because if we don't criticize it, it's never going to get better. Right. You know, if, if, if we don't, if you don't look at something and say, well, this isn't working and this isn't working, then nothing is ever going to grow. But at the same time, if you wrap yourself up in this is what this is, like if you wrap yourself up in the blanket of the Nolan Batman is the only Batman, then I'm going to look at you and go, that's cute. I'm glad you feel that way. You do realize everything he did was ripped off of Jeff Loeb and Frank Miller. Hmm. And then watch their heads explode. <laughs> because I reread Long Halloween a couple years ago, and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy shit. There are entire scenes ripped out of this book. And on one hand, I want to see the comic on the screen. I want to see I want to see representations of what I know of the character in adapted media. Mm-hmm. But there's this uncomfortable feeling when an entire sequence and the linchpin of your movie is based upon something you lifted directly from a comic book and you're getting the credit for it. That bothers the shit out of me. Well, and there are instances where like Chris Nolan, it's not even that he was given credit for it. He actively took credit for it. Mm-hmm. And to be charitable, you know, one of the one of his most famous quotes was that, well, nobody's ever done this before. If we limit the universe of that mentality to big screen film, yes, that's true. Nobody had ever done what Chris Nolan had done before. That is absolutely true. If we take a little bit more of a broad view of it, the reality is he took a bunch of comic book ideas stuff that manifestly came from comics, some more famous than others, but came from comics nevertheless, dropped him in a blender, tossed in a couple of his own ideas, hit high, and then made a movie based on that. And you know what, dude? It's a good movie. I'm glad you made it. But, you know, you're not exactly fucking Marco Polo here. You know, you're... (laughs) You know, you're you you are boldly going where many 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 people have gone before you. I mean, Batman Mythos is basically a French fucking whorehouse. You know, there have been a lot of people that came there after you. There are going to be a lot of people. You know, I mean, it's it's just whatever. I if you need to to believe this in order to sleep well at night, that I guess that's fine. I'm not going to take that away from you, but try to keep it in perspective. It, it was kind of like Goyer was the same way when he was, you know, doing the press for Man of Steel. It's like no one's really ever explored Clark's past. I'm like, really? There was a show on for ten years. It's a decade, dude. There are people that know Superman only from that show. There is an entire generation, a generation of people that ten years from now are going to be filmmakers in Hollywood 
doing Superman films based on Smallville. Yeah. It's going to happen. Well, and you know what? One of them, oddly enough, was Zack fucking Snyder. I mean, you can't overlook the Smallville influence, at least in Goyer, maybe, maybe not. Snyder, oh, uh, undeniable. Undeniable. Yeah, I mean, just, just the way he he had those characters. Now, you know, the Jonathan Kent in Man of Steel was very different from the Jonathan Kent on Smallville. Ooh, yeah. uh, if I'm going to pick a side, I'm going John Schneider. Um, but I had more time to get to know him, so there is that. I, I had, I mean... We're talking about a character I stopped watching the show over. Uh, halfway through season five, they killed him, and I'm like, I am fucking out. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of <laughs> and, people felt that way. <laughs> it's just like, Sorry. you chose Lana over Jonathan. I I don't know you. Good day, sir. And, you know, like, leave out in a huff, you know, as I put my monocle on the table and all that. But, um, but God, I look at, uh, you know, I look at Smallville – and, it, and now, you know, after talking to him last night, I kind of want to go back and watch the entire series again. It was kind of funny. It's just like, I'm glad I have those DVDs in case I want to do that. Well, you know, there, there is a Smallville companion out there. I don't know if you know about this. Oh, it, it's a great, it's a great companion. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It comes out every eighth Tuesday on the Two Freaks Network. You know, I don't always agree with the guy, but I really respect his opinion. Because <laughs> I know he's coming from an honest place. So, I, I, you know, it's just like, you know, he, he likes things about that show that I don't. But uh, I, I, I really appreciate that he's out there and that he is the rational voice of support for the show. Mm, yeah, he gets that a lot. You know, there's, there, there's no your way sucks, my way is the only way that some Smallville fans get. And again... It's funny that that is kind of a a two thousand ish thing, because because it, it, when you think about it, the the purest Smallville people are every bit as bad as the purest Nolan Batman people, like because it's their version of it. It's completely the only way it can ever be done, and. This is going to sound really egotistical. I look at that and go, "Oh, that's so fucking cute." <laughs> That, well, that's adorable that you feel that way. <laughs> you know what? I'll. It's not that you're wrong because I don't think you are, but I'll cut the Smallville people a little bit of slack in that the Nolan Batman kind of had an open field. I mean, unless you consider uh, the Brave and the Bold, and I don't know that you should, there really wasn't competition for mm. the Nolan Batman. I mean, he pretty much ran the table, you know? Smallville had to, in some way or another, compete with a multi-hundred million dollar Hollywood blockbuster machine. And somehow it survived. And I can kind of understand the territoriality. I don't – I think it's a little misplaced. I mean I'm not trying to make excuses for anybody. But I do kind of understand the territoriality that people have about it where – you know, this was something that they kind of had to guard themselves against, especially from like I would say probably 2005 to about 2008, mm-hmm. around there, and that's a huge chunk of the show's run. When, let's face it, don't kid yourself. You know that axe was dangling. You know, and it didn't. Uh, Al Goff made a kind of he I somewhat alluded to it. He never actually said, you know, we were going to be strong armed, but I you. you you can kind of infer that from what he was saying that you guys need to change what you're doing to match this stuff over here that has nothing to do with you. And 
somehow, in spite of all of the pressure and arguably three films, three major Warner Brothers films, one of which only only one of them actually came into existence during Smallville's run, but nevertheless, three major films. You know, things didn't have to go the way that they did, and I would kind of understand if they've got a little bit of post-traumatic stress disorder over this thing that they treasure and they cherish so much, being threatened by external forces. And so I'm not saying that they're right to behave like idiots. I'd never say that. But, you know, they at least kind of have a rational cause for it, whereas the the I don't know what else to call them, Nolan Nazis, not so much. You know, so well, it, it's kind of funny to hear how close Alan Miles uh, worked with Brian Singer and uh, Michael Doherty and the other guy that wrote Superman Returns. It, it was interesting hearing that uh, Singer, for example, was really excited that they introduced the Fortress of Solitude in season five mm-hmm. because that would let an entire generation of people who wasn't who weren't familiar with Superman know what the fortress is so he doesn't have to explain it in his film. And when you really think about it, Superman just rocks up to the Fortress of Solitude and so does Lex. If you had never seen the Donner films and you knew nothing about Superman, where in the hell are they? You know? Like, so Smallville, this is why I defend Smallville now. Because, one, it was its own thing. You know, and and at the time, in 2001, because... I had gone through 15 years almost at that point of one Superman origin. You know, Lois and Clark was there. The animated series was there. But they followed the same track that the Burn comics did to a certain extent, you know? Yeah. So there was enough there that felt familiar that it was like, this is okay. But Smallville really started deviating. And maybe it's because... Over the past 15 years, we've gotten like a billion Superman origins. Yep. You know, you know, Birthright, Secret Origins, the Earth One uh, books, which I think are freaking amazing, mm-hmm. uh, especially the second and third one. God, he was like, why weren't you writing this Superman and Grounded? <laughs> yeah, it's almost hard to believe that it's the same guy that wrote both. Yeah, I'm right there with you. What the fuck happened? And, you know, Man of Steel, you know, just like all these things. So now the idea of exploring Superman's backstory, it's like what everyone's doing. It's like it's the only interesting thing a certain generation of creators can do with the character. And I got to say, overall, looking at it, it it went into some different directions. I kind of prefer the Smallville approach because at least there... I get where this guy is coming from. And yes, I got to spend 10 years, you know, even though I didn't watch the show all the time, you know, watching 10 seasons of television. You know what? I still haven't watched season seven. That's really weird. Dude. Oh, look, season seven gets a bad rap from a lot of people, but you know, that's, I don't get it. I mean, you know, there are some, because of the fact that yes, there was a writer strike going on. There are some episodes that are just a little, off and i kind of chalk that up to the fact that you know they're working off of a script that would have had easy easy six or seven more revisions to it or maybe even six or seven more just fucking drafts to it that it had two drafts and so that's the most that they could get and so 
some of those episodes, and I mean only a few, you'll know them when you see them, but only a few of them are kind of weak sauce. But, you know, that season, it did, it did the impossible. And it made, it made Lana, I shouldn't say likable, but it, it, it made her interesting. You know, her story is actually engaging in the Sainted Seventh season, you know? Whereas before, and I think it kind of started in in the sixth season, Smallville's shippiest season. <laughs> yes. It kind of started there. But the stuff, the directions they took Lana in, in the, in, in the Sainted Seventh season, you know, I, I, I refuse to say the word likable because you don't like somebody who does the stuff that Lana does in that season. But damned if her, if her story isn't interesting. It's it's fun to watch, you know, and for this kind of cipher of a character who never really had a character. Now, all of a sudden, she's got a direction and it's like for once the writing knows what to do with her. And the fact that people are writing this season off, it's like, are, what the fuck season are you guys watching? Because this is awesome, you know? But, you know, this does kind of lead into a question that I've kind of wanted – I mean, I'm not trying to spring anything on you, but honestly, this did this did just occur to me. I've wanted to ask you this for a long time. In 1986, Superman got a new origin in mm-hmm. comics, right? In like 2003, 2004 – he got he got a new origin and then in 2006 he got a new origin and then in 2011 a new origin is at least implied in the comics and then you get stuff like earth 1 and then you get things what's that thing that um now I'm blanking on it uh, all american alien or oh the the thing max landis is writing right now the, yeah that uh this is the same guy that said, I don't want that level of violence involved with Superman when he was criticizing Man of Steel and writes an issue of uh, an issue of that comic that's set in Smallville. That's a fucking episode of Criminal Minds. Oh, geez. Wow. Well, yeah. And one of the things that I think has killed, I don't mean like temporarily crippled. I mean, it's fucking destroyed, never to be repaired. The Legion of Superheroes is the multitude of reboots, three boots, unboots and reversions, new versions. The Legion of Superheroes at this point is I think broken beyond all repair. I don't think you can actually make a viable comic about the Legion anymore. I think those days are gone. And the fear that I have is that all of these new origins of Superman I'm scared shitless that the that what we're seeing is actually the death throes of this character in comics. It's possible. I mean, I, I never like to say, you know, like give a, give a time limit on something because back in 1998, people were like, comics aren't going to be here in five years. And back in 1993, people are going to were like, comics aren't going to be here in nine years. And in 1979, People are like, you know, enjoy while you can, because comics aren't going to be here in nine years and five years. And, you know, seemingly it, it seems to um, it, it seems to uh, to continue on. I think we are at an extreme low point in Superman. Um, and, and there's many factors involving with that. And I think most of it has to do with 
the people in charge of the character don't believe in the character like I think they should. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and I'm not saying, you know, oh, Dan DiDio and Jim Lee suck and they just hate Superman. I don't think they hate Superman. I think one of them doesn't like the character. Uh, but that's based on comments from the 90s, so, you know, people change. But, you know, the, the character of Mr. Majestic was created specifically because... Jim Lee didn't think that Superman was doing what Superman should be doing. You know, yeah. he, he looked at a character with that level of power and said, why is he doing this? Not realizing that's the entire freaking point of the character. Uh, but that's going from the standpoint of somebody who made their bones in comics and and became a millionaire. This is the thing that I have to remind myself with when it comes to Jim Lee, is that Jim Lee became a millionaire based on doing a certain type of comic. Yes. It's hard to, when you look at that empirical data, it's just like, well, this is what people want. But I I think we're at a low point with the character because people responsible for the character, one, don't really know how to handle him. And I'm not saying they're stupid and I'm not saying they're not creative enough. There's a code there. And I think when you look at the 90s, when Batman was really becoming ascendant at DC Comics, and that had everything to do with blockbuster movies and an animated series. So in the popular consciousness, Batman was huge. And Batman was successful. Batman and Robin made money. It is critically derided, but that movie made money. It made its money back at least. Yeah. You know, for, for, for what it costs them for producing the film and for the uh, marketing and all that. Hey, you don't so, have to tell me. I'm the guy that defended it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I'm preaching to the choir here. But <laughs> I, I think we're at a point where no one knows what to do with the character, which is why we're seeing so many origin stories. Because we're seeing people trying to figure it out, you know? And, you know, you, you hand it to somebody like Grant Morrison. And I got to say, the first, like, five or six issues of Action Comics, I enjoyed. I was just like, oh, this is an interesting take. Yeah, I would have actually wanted more of that, actually. Yeah. And, but he was telling another story, and DC was also trying to publish contemporary Superman stories. So there's, like, this confusion out there of what really works, which is why in the New 52, Superman is all over the freaking place. I think we're at the tipping point. I honestly think right now, in the next couple of years, is going to decide it. And if it goes the way it should... They're going to look at this character and go, okay, what we've been doing has been failing and failing for a decade. I would go further than that. You know, I, you know, I I always said that Superman started kind of going on a downhill turn right after Infinite Crisis. But Andy Leyland kind of opened my eyes and made me remember stuff (laughs) from collecting at that point that, nah. It's been a little longer than that. I mean, I love, you know, you and I have a difference of opinion on Jeff Loeb. Mm-hmm. And um, Chuck Austin. And Chuck Austin. Uh, but I think we can both agree that Loeb's regular Superman stories were a little better than some of the other Superman stories going on at the same time. I could agree uh, with that. Uh, I, I think he was more consistent than Joe Kelly, who was enjoyable. 
Uh, Mark Schultz was doing his own Kryptonian thing, so I kind of put him in a, in a different mindset. And Joe Casey wanted to tell Silver Age Superman stories at a time that I was completely not wanting Superman Silver Age type stories. <laughs> so, I, you know, and, and even... I'm not saying that I love what he did with the character, but even I look back on what Chuck Austin did and go, well, at least he had a, 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 a take, you know, I hated what he did to Lois. But when I reread those issues a couple of years ago, I was like, these were a lot more enjoyable than I remember them. And then you got to remember that Azarello kind of sucks all the air out of that room. <laughs> when you, when, when you look at Austin Azarello and Rucka, <laughs> Well, and that so, was huh? Rucka and, and Austin are just going to look amazing by just existing at that point. I agree. And like the thing was, that was something about, you know, I guess the what I imagine. I mean, I have no idea how you and you and Taylor are going to handle it. But what I've always sort of imagined is the future of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which you can find at supermanhomepage.com is when you get to that, I guess that sort of downward slope of the Burn Age Superman, and if you can even call him that anymore, when you start getting to there, I mean, I know that on the one hand, you know, you, you've you been not obnoxious about it, but you've been, you know, pretty forthright that Austin, not really your thing. But when you put that over and against everything else that was coming out at the time, and I speak here of like the Kansas sighting and stuff like that. I can't help but think that, you know, you or Taylor, you're not even going to catch it. Not even in editing. You're going to, one of you is going to say, and now we get to talk about some good, good old fashioned Chuck Austin comics, you know? And, you know, I mean, after just this onslaught of suck and not to mention the fact that this is all coming on the heels of, what is it, Stephen T. Siegel? I mean, that was like 2002, 2003, something like that. Uh, you know, as bad as it is right now, that is, you know, this is the Great Depression. That was my Vietnam. <laughs> oh. It's just, I mean, I, I look at, I, you know, and, 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 and here's the funny thing. A couple years ago, I said, okay, I'm constantly slagging this off. Let me sit down and read it. Let me pause. So I pulled Siegel's run of Superman out of it, and I was reading that 10 cent adventure. Was it the 10 cent or was it the 12 cent? I thought I it was the 10 cent. It was one of those because because yeah. Batman had a 10 cent and then a 12 cent. Yeah. Uh, to introduce two different storylines, and then Fantastic Four and and Hulk had 25 cent issues. Yeah, uh, they were just throwing everything against the wall in those days, weren't they? So. <laughs> Um, but I, I reread it and I, and I was like, okay, I got through it. I'm like, okay, this is fine. And then I got to the second issue of his run and went, no, no, I'm right. I am so right about this. I am so right about everything about this. And I don't normally like, you know, pat myself on the back like that. You know, I don't normally be like, uh, um, Anthony Michael Hall at the end of a breakfast club when he finishes up the essay and kind of like, yeah, you did a good job, but still Tom Panarese is laughing right now. Um, <laughs> but it was such a bad time and they try, you know, they got rid of, you know, 
here is why the Jeff Loeb, Michael Turner, Cara Zorel looks so good is the same reason why Paul Jenkins looks good. And ironically, they both involve Peter David. Peter David leaves the Hulk because Marvel tells him you're going to, we want to do Hulk stories where he fights the Avengers. And this is me paraphrasing. Peter David's like, fuck that. And everything that looks like that. I'm sure that wasn't the exact conversation, but it's the general tone that I get. Yep. So he leaves and John Byrne comes on and relaunches the title and it's terrible. It's just not good. The Ron Garney art is amazing, but the story is just awful. And then you have six issues after that where you have some fill in people. And then Paul Jenkins comes on and kind of takes the book back more towards what Peter David was doing, but in a different way and did something that I completely disagree with. And I told him as such, uh, we had a very pleasant conversation, but he was the one that pointed out to me, Paul Jenkins was the one that pointed out to me, he had it lucky because he didn't have to follow Byrne. I mean, uh, Peter David. Byrne had to. So Byrne took all the brunt, and he gets to come in and look good. Kara Zorel Supergirl looks good because we get rid of the, the, the Linda Danvers one and is replaced by Sorel. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then no one likes Sorel. I'm sure there is a person out there that has a Sorel fan page. Or is at least blogging about it. And it's really easy. You're done in like 20 comics. So, you know, there's the shortest run podcast ever. <laughs> I don't know. The original Arrowette. That's a pretty short run podcast. So. <laughs> but, but seriously, when you look at when you look at them coming in after that, it's just like, oh, thank God. Something that's more of what I, I recognize, even though it's completely different and undoes something that people considered pivotal to pivotal <laughs> pivotal to what that superman was him being and and that's the other thing that i think is kind of funny is that for 20 years almost superman was done a certain way and there were people behind the scenes fighting passionately to keep it that way and now it just seems like all for nothing you know it's just like we're going to keep superman the only kryptonian and Till they decide to do the whole Supergirl thing. And, you know, the, the, I think this, they call it Superman, Batman, Supergirl. I believe the original story was the girl from Krypton. I think, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Just as it's not public enemies, but world's finest. Right. And that's what I go by. Yeah. Cause those comics that I paid money for. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, they can call it the trade paperbacks, whatever they want. <laughs> Did you get the screwed up issue five? Um, I think so. I, it's, a, it's buried in a bunch of long boxes, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was reading it at work, and I got, and they kept repeating pages, and I called my LCS. I'm like, uh, guys, there's something wrong with Superman Batman number five. What? And then the guy I was talking to was, was one of the guys that I got along with, but he didn't have the best people skills. Mm-hmm. He's just like, well, do you want another one? I'm like, yeah, it'd be kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just, and I hung up the phone going, only in a comic shop or a Walmart can the associate look, you know, the, the, the employee look at somebody and go, oh, you want me to do something about it? And you accept it. <laughs> or it, it is seemingly more acceptable. 
Well, you know, that's the thing. I kind of went through a lot of that when I was – let me think. I was I, – God, I had to be like 14 or 15 or something like that. And that's where a lot – like my teenage years, that's where a lot of my unpleasant LCS stories come from. But there was this point when I, I went in there and I was on a I was on a back issue binge. I mean this was Mission Impossible. I'm finding all of this rare Batman stuff and I'm, I'm going to get my stuff or some very unpleasant things are going to happen. And so went in there and, you know, ready to ring out and everything. And I look over and I see that customers and employees alike are gathered around this gaming table. And I don't fucking know what game they would have been playing. Magic, maybe. I don't know. And so I'm waiting, waiting. And so one of one of the LCS employees looks up and he says, oh, are you ready to check out? And I said, yeah, that, uh, that'd that be kind of nice. And he said, oh, sorry, you know, we, we can just get, you know, really sucked into this game. And I said, yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> I wish I wish I could get paid to... Uh, play games and stuff you know that would that'd be a lot of fun and you know we end up you know and because i didn't really it's not that i didn't have good people skills back then i just didn't really give a shit so um we end up getting into an argument i'm about ready to jump the counter and just beat this guy's ass you know and because there is such a thing as customer service and there is such a thing as manners and they really ought to go hand in hand but just in case they don't we've got fucking training videos so here's a little cheat sheet for you you fucker and somehow though it's like we accept poor customer service nowhere absolutely nowhere except at the dmv and the lcs and that's wrong you know why is that and at least one of those places you have to go to and no, I don't mean the comic shop. Yeah, I was going to ask, which of those <laughs> if, is it? If you want a driver's license, and it's the same with the post office. Where I work right now, we also do postal shipping. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times a day someone comes in, oh, I like coming here because I hate going to the post office. And I'm like, yeah. Especially here in Peachtree City. Well, I'm not in Peachtree City, but I work in Peachtree City. The Peachtree City post office is fucking awful. Mm-hmm. Those people are some of the – I mean, no one looks like they want to be there. No one. And I'm like, look, in this economy, you got a job. And I'm sorry, you also have a job with benefits. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, you may hate having to deal with people. And believe me, I deal with the public on a daily basis. I know what fuckers people can be. And just just in general, and you know, and, and and I'm not talking like people who who have legitimate reasons to be upset. Like we deal with a lot of funeral programs. Ah, uh, yeah. So, which is the part of my job I hate the most because I'm not good at dealing with people in grief. <laughs> I freeze up. I lock up. It's really funny. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know whether like do I hug them or. You know, I can't say I'm sorry because I know from personal experience that that really doesn't make you feel better. So, you know, it's just like, so what do I do? But, but you know, you go to the DMV. Those people are there. They have their job. Their job is mostly safe because who are you going to complain to? Their supervisor? 
you know what their supervisor did? The same job that person did and was probably as shitty a human being. It's why they became a supervisor. Right. <laughs> they became a supervisor for a bigger paycheck. Let's be real about this. But when I, you know, here's a new comic shop in this area. Uh, I, and I met the owner uh, because he bought fixtures from Office Depot. So one day I'm, I'm at work and I'm, I see we, we had this little um, receipt book, basically, of people that had purchased fixtures that we haven't taken down yet. Mm-hmm. And I see first edition comics. I'm like, there's a comic shop opening up a Peachtree City. And suddenly I'm Brody and Mallrats. Like, how am I not aware of this? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the guy came in and we got to a conversation and I helped him load his stuff up and I went into his shop and this dude is totally about customer service. He is, he is one of the smoothest comic shop people I've ever seen because he talks to people, he listens to them, he finds something they like. And when they're like checking out, Hey, do you want me to put this on your, uh, on like a, a pull list for you? Which is what you need in a comic shop. And if they say no, he doesn't try to hard sell them on it. Yeah. He's just like, Okay, dude, that's cool. You know, hey, but if you ever want it, it's right here, and we pull it for you every week, and we send you an email saying when it's in. So I get it. I have a couple books that I get through him, and I get an email every Wednesday. Badass. Hey, these books are here for you, and I'm just like, and when I go in, he's very pleasant. He's, you know, the store is is and it's new, so it's easier to keep clean, I guess. But right, and I compare that to the the other comic shop I go to, where I love. I love it because I've been going to it for so many years, but the place is a mess. And some of the people that work there are not people, people, <laughs> you know, yeah. people, persons, I guess I should say. Right. Like they try, but it just doesn't work out. And it's just like people put up with it because I guess they don't want to buy their comics off the internet. See, the internet should scare the shit out of comic dealers. Um, well, and I, I've wondered about that. And, you know, depending on what your answer was going to be, I was going to float a little bit of a conspiracy theory to you and uh, just just put it in the background. All right. Just see see what you think about this. All right. Is it possible that what we're dealing with here is the Dick's Last Resort effect where people go there? knowing damn good and well that they're going to be mistreated, but they kind of regard that as part... Because, look, I'm trying to find a way to, to to rationalize to myself how we can possibly put up with bullshit like this. And this is the only thing I can figure. But, you know, the Dick's Last Resort effect, where, you know, for those of you who don't know, Dick's Last Resort, it the gimmick of the restaurant, it's it it's otherwise just another burger shack. What kind of separates Dick's Last Resort from other places is that in a in a kind of fun teasing sort of way they truly don't care about you or your opinion they will mock and demean you to your face you know and again it's all in good fun they don't actually mean it and there's a certain zone they're not going to go into but nevertheless you know that is kind of the shtick of the place and i've always thought god that that would be my dream job right there you know hey can i get a refill on my tea oh fuck's sake you again yeah whatever you know, and the thing is, I'm not kidding, you know, but they think I am. So it's the uh, best of both worlds. But, you know, my LCS, you know, when I go there, I get greeted by name because I know all the people that work there. And 
they say, hey, you know, this new well, it wouldn't be Legion of Superheroes, but they might say, hey, this new Legion thing is out. You want to take a look at that? And uh, oh, OK, well, you know, we've also got a we've also got some Doctor Who T-shirts of Stacy once one, you know, and and all these other things. And it really is, you know, just good service. They are very friendly. They will be friends if if you if you want them to. I mean, they're just some kind of social people. And the reason I keep going back is because it's a little bit of a drive for me at this point. But, you know, what price peace? You know, it, to me, it's it, it's worth it to to go literally the extra mile in this case when waiting on the other side of that is a place that, you know, they're not going to look at me in complete abject moral fucking contempt for disrupting their nap. You know, I, I, I think this is something that comic books shops have struggled with since comic book shops were a thing. Uh, because, you know, there's a reason why comic book guy exists on the Simpsons. Um, is because outside of the, you might appreciate this reference, outside of the carpet baggers <laughs> from the late eighties and early nineties. <laughs> that's who they are. <laughs> uh, and they were there. I have a video that's hosted by Frank Gorshin about, you know, how to collect comics. What are they? Where do you go? And uh, it was produced in 1989, which is why Frank Gorshin was part of it. Because yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like real speculator type stuff. And it was. And, and, and you had these comic shop owners, one of which say, you know, and, and we're here to help people. It's like people want to know what the next hot book is. It's, you know, we're kind of like stocks. You know, we're, we're going to tell them what book, you know, we try to help them to find the book that's going to go up in value. So, and, and you know, I, I, I'm not into that, so... You know the fact that the fact that I bought New Mutants '98 back in 1997 wasn't an investment. It's that I found it in a 50 cent box, and it seemed like a good idea. And the fact that I was able to sell Deadpool's first appearance for what I was able to sell it for continues to astound me three years later. So, <laughs> bet you wish you waited until now to sell it. <laughs> yeah, no shit, dude. <laughs> That's why I got my apocalypse first appearance sitting in the other room and I'm waiting till May <laughs> slapping that fucker up on eBay. Um, but um, again, I bought that cause I wanted X factor and now I, you know, I've got Marvel unlimited, so who cares? Uh, but the, um, but the thing is, is that I think the people that start comic shops are mostly people that really like comic books. Mm -hmm. And again, not trying to smack talk my own people, we've got some socially maladjusted people in our ranks. And when you are in that, have you ever seen the movie Comic Book Villains? I have not. I've heard of it, never seen it. Okay. I really recommend it. One, it's written and directed by James Robinson. So. Uh, you know, if you like Starman, um, you know, and I do, and that you know, it's it's that James Robinson. There are two comic shops in that movie, and one of them is owned by a guy played by Donald Logue, and oh he, he's got kind of slicked back hair, and he's constantly puffing on a pipe, and he's sitting there holding court with people. 
And I'm like, God, this is so authentic. <laughs> <laughs> this is now the, the theme of the film. I had a, I had a problem with the ultimate resolution and everything that happened and what the main character learned. I had a serious problem with, but there's another set of characters played by Michael Rappaport and God, what was her name? She was, um, she was in, she was the blind woman in blade Trinity. Natasha Leone. Okay. She Never was also an American. Trinity. She was also an American Pie. Um, but th- they are they are a married couple that opened it up, and they have the nice clean store. But they're there to sell comics, not because they necessarily love comics. Right. And and I think that film is like the best example of the two different people that open up comic shops. <laughs> you got the guy that loves it, and his store is a mess. And he's and I, I think to a certain extent because these some of these guys get into this position where they hold a position of power over people. This is where you get your funny books, and I think because comic shops aren't like WalMarts or Targets or grocery stores, where if I go to Kroger for example, mm-hmm. and they don't have what I need like five times in a row. Like, you know, the first time you're like, okay, they're out. And the second time you're like, okay, they're still out. That's annoying, but maybe the truck didn't come in yet. By the fifth time you're like, they're never getting this back in and they don't care. Yeah, pretty <laughs> So much. I'm going to go to Publix and I'm going to get what I need. Because you don't have that with comic shops, these people get into these mindsets like, well, I gotta gotta put up this shitty service because it's the only place I can get my thing. And I think some comic book shop owners get off on that. They get off on kind of the the silly power they have over people. And I, I think we're kind of in the last days of that too because if I wanted to, I could get all my monthly comics delivered to my door. And I, have, and I have different options. I can pay a little more in postage and get it weekly, or I can pay one lump sum and get everything at the end of the month. All right, yeah. Let, yes, let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about that. When I was a kid. When I was a boy. I I'm tried. I'm picturing like a Nirvana song playing right now. I just want you to know that just to set the scene. Because <laughs> that's a <laughs> I'll see if I can find one. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when I when I was a kid, I tried, 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 tried like hell to uh, give this whole mail order thing a shot. You know, I really did because I'm sure you can appreciate that when you're, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, you don't have a car, you don't have a job, you don't, I mean, there are so many things you need in order to get a comic that you just fucking don't have. You're close to it, but not quite. It's just out of reach, and so you can't just go to the LCS anytime you want. So I tried mail order, and I guess my first sort of pass at that, you remember DC subscriptions? Mm Mm-hmm. Crashing failure. You would get books, like, sometimes two months after the cover date, which is no bueno. And it's especially difficult with the Superman titles because it really doesn't make sense to subscribe to anything less than all of them, as I discovered kind of the hard way. So I thought, okay, Mm -hmm. well, what about actual retail mail order? I can try that. And so 
I tried literally everything I could think of. And again, you know, it's not two months late, praise God, but it's still, you're not exactly getting these things on the street release date. You know, like the day that it comes out in comic book stores, you're still probably a month away. You know, no good. And so, you know, I mean, I realize that at least theoretically, mail order does kind of pose a threat to, the, I guess, the long-term viability of comic book shops, you know, at least on paper. But there's, I, I think there's something in most comic book collectors. They want to get it along with everybody else. And they may be willing to wait a week, maybe two weeks. But then when you start getting too far away from that, even if they're getting discounts and price breaks and, you know, free bags and boards and all this other stuff, they fucking don't care. They just want to get their stuff. And, you know, it would be nice to think that, you know, the great equalizer there is going to be, you know, ordering online. I'm not sure that it will be, and at least not until the, the I guess, the, the outlets, the websites from which you buy this stuff, find a way to speed up delivery. I mean, there's got to be something better. So, well, and, and that's kind of where digital comes into it as well, yeah. because that is instantaneous. Uh, and it, it's funny, I, a couple years ago when I was at Dragon Con, I went to this panel uh, that was pretty much about the Avengers film, because it was on the uh, Joss Whedon track, yep. uh, which is the only way you're going to get an Avengers panel on the Joss, <laughs> a comic book panel on the Joss Whedon track that doesn't have to do with Buffy. Uh, pretty much, so, yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the guys on the panel uh, owns a comic shop. And it, I, I was fascinated talking to this guy because he was kind of showing me the changing face of comic book buyers. Because I don't really, I mean, I, I go I go to my shop like once, maybe, sometimes I go like on a weekly basis, but it's not like the old days where I was there on Wednesday and I was getting my comic books, you know? It's just yeah. like I had to get it because I had to see... I, I, I gotta see what's happening in, 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 in this lead up to Infinite Crisis. Oh my God. Right. Um, so I don't really talk to other people because frankly, most of the people that go to comic, uh, one, I'm, I don't know if this comes off. I'm kind of antisocial to begin with. Uh, I like, I like talking to my friends and stuff, but I'm not one of these people that just likes to spark up conversations with strangers. Right. Um, and I blame my mother entirely for that because she was the one that, you know, like we were never friendly. We like knew our neighbors and I like babysat for them and stuff, but it's not like we were all like, Hey, you know, we were on all up in each other's business. Yeah. You know, it's like, so <laughs> I knew the Henry's lived on one side and the Tunkies lived on the other. I could, and I, and I babysat for the Henry's. So I knew their kids and stuff, but it's not like barbecues and, or cook Sorry, Scott Rife and cookouts. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's an, that's important. <laughs> and I didn't know there was a distinction until I moved to Georgia. I just want everyone to know this. <laughs> Northern people don't get it. I just, and then that's okay. But so I'm not like one of these people that's just like, hey man, you looking at that? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, let's be bros and stuff like that. I'm just like, I'm I'm gonna look through my my shit and get out. I may talk to Dave, you know, the owner, because I know Dave. You know, I've known Dave for almost 20 years now, so, you know, that guy. But just, like, random people, 
just not so much. So talking to this guy gave me a sense, you know, of, of the changing kind of landscape. And it's, you know, the, the movies don't directly affect comic sales, but they affect people wanting to go check out the comics. And what this guy discovered, and I don't know if this is universal, is that people would come in and they would buy a trade and then start buying single issues. So that's a completely different dynamic than 10 years ago. I mean, that's a completely, uh, definitely a, a different dynamic than 20 years ago because there were trade paperbacks 20 years ago, but it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now. Yeah, you know, definitely. Like, holy crap, like every bookstore now has a graphic novel section. And depending on, you know, how popular it is, is how big that section is. Remember how exciting it was to go into Walden Books and see The Dark Knight Returns on the shelf? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh my god, there's a comic book in this bookstore! My, uh, I guess my benchmark for that was the... There was... There were two separate collections that I always tried to keep an eye out for, mostly so that I wouldn't I could establish that bookstore's cred. And those were, there was this leather bound edition. And at the time you could fit all of these comics under one, you know, between two covers. I don't think you can now, but they called it the complete Frank Miller Batman. Ah, I had that until it was stolen. Yeah. And it was this really nice leather bound volume and it had the glossy paper and everything. It was, it was really nice, you know, really nice. And then the other one was a kind of special edition, leather-bound, a very similar type of presentation, but uh, a leather-bound special version of the greatest Joker stories ever told that mm -hmm. actually had a couple of extra comics in it as, uh, as compared to even to the hardcover. And Stacked Deck was what it was called. Oh, is that it? Okay. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And I never actually owned stacked deck but I did own the complete Frank Miller Batman but I tried to get an idea of this uh, of this bookstore's bona fides I guess do they have uh, I don't know Panic in the Sky do they have the Panic in the Sky trade paperback okay then that's going to be a particular type of bookstore do they have the complete the uh, complete Frank Miller Batman and stacked deck? Okay, then they're going to be a different type of bookstore. And what I discovered was that Walden Books could be reliably depended upon to have Panic in the Sky and that type of trade paperback. B. Dalton Bookseller was the inverse of that. This is like the more kind of hoity-toity, sniffy type of retail bookstore that they're going to have stacked deck. They're going to have the leather-bound complete Frank Miller Batman and all of that. And it was it, it, it was kind of weird even then that they had different sort of retail identities in the marketplace expressed, oddly enough, in their comic book uh, stocking habits, you know? And mm -hmm. it, it filled me with curiosity. You know, how do you get to... The, I don't know. Anyway, so... But yeah, that's... It, it's, it is kind of a weird thing. And I can't help but think, you know, when I went to, because again, I was kind of suffering from subscriptionitis, I wanted to get Adventures of Superman number 501 because 
Uh, for those of you who don't remember, Adventures of Superman 501, Superman number 78, Man of Steel number 22, and Action Comics 687 all came out on the exact same day. This is kind of the onset of the Reign of the Superman storyline. And basically, I think we're starting the downslope of the speculator boom at that point, or it's about to start, but it's still kind of a thing. And I wanted to get, for sure, I wanted to get Adventures of Superman 501 rather than wait for it to arrive in the mail. There's no fucking way I'm going to be able to wait for this thing in the mail. Not happening. Right? So, wanted to go out and get that. And I did not go to Walden Books. I did not go to my LCS. Do you know where I got that? I got the Collector's Edition, Adventures of Superman 501, at a supermarket. It's this <laughs> weird thing. And I mean, like, it, it, you know how it's, it's got that... What's that... What do you call that cover where it's, like, part of it's die, cut out? Die cut, I think it's... it's yeah, called. it could be. I got the die cut version of that of that comic. Not just the regular newsstand version, which I actually think is a better cover. But the die cut version of that, you know, the collector's edition, at a fucking supermarket. They had a, uh, a comic book kiosk set up there where they had some speculator asshole who was selling, you know, all the hot image books, all the hot Marvel books, all the hot DC books. If what you want is a back issue selection, you're SOL. Mm -hmm. But if what you need to do is just go up there and pick up your stuff, like you need to get the new issue of Spawn, or you're looking for Youngblood number one, or whatever the, the hot book that month is, you can find it there. And that kind of thing was very typical in the early 90s, where you would have, sometimes with a back issue selection, but certainly you would have some kind of comic book selection of like newer stuff in the weirdest places. You know, I've, I mean, I've heard stories about people going to like department stores and, and seeing, you know, comic book kiosks set up there because they know that kids are going to get dragged to the department store by their parents and, hey, this is a good place to have some impulse buys. And apparently they made a living doing that. That's how fucking ubiquitous this stuff was, you know? And it kind of makes you think, you know, it, are, is the comic book industry better now in terms of quality? Is it better now for not having that or is it worse, do you think? I, I think distribution is going to be a problem no matter what age we live in but, you know there's been for at least the past 10 years and I know it goes farther back than that but you know since you know people have been podcasting for about 10 years this is where you know I was really starting to hear about it you know there, there's always the the issue of distribution there are people out there that believe that comic shops are killing the industry because you know they're they're the only place you can buy the books and i'm going to be charitable and say half of them are run by people that have social function disorders of one, <laughs> of, of one order one, one order or another you know because you know there, there's a funny bit in um gerard jones's and will jacobs uh, the second iteration of their comic book heroes book uh, where they kind of discuss the history, uh, you know, the, the original version was more of a reading guide. This was more of we've been in the industry for about 
15 years now, so we're going to tell you some shit. And one of the things that they said that I always thought was funny is that in the 80s, you know, if you were in a comic book shop and even a reasonably attractive woman came in, fans were said to, you know, fumble for words and look for the latest copy of Red Sonia. (laughs) And you hear, and I've heard stories, uh, you know, like, you know, like actual stories, not like I heard a friend of a friend told me of, of women who, you know, in the 90s went into comic shops and it wasn't a really good experience for them. Uh, because the people there were not used to seeing them. And unfortunately, there, there, there is this kind of segment of comic book fandom that has this vibe that, you know, you know that they want to build a treehouse and put a no girls allowed sign on it. Um, which I'm like, hey, if they want to read books, fuck it, let them read it. You know, <laughs> that's going to keep the industry thriving. So mm-hmm. but, you know, I, I, I think nowadays because the demographic is changing so much and is shifting more mainstream uh, and that comic shops are not, you know, they're not doing as bad as they were a couple years ago, but I don't think they're doing all that well. You know, how are you going to get this stuff in their hands? You know, and people think that digital is going to be the way to go. Digital is going to save everything. And I don't think that's the answer because I, (laughs) I've been buying trade paperbacks recently of books that I've read through Marvel Unlimited. And my wife's like, why are you getting these? And I'm like, I'm I'm waiting. She's like, waiting for what? Waiting for the day that Marvel Unlimited doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and I still want to read this comic. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, and I'm not talking like, you know, nightmare scenarios like the EMP hits and technology is gone. And we have to create new technology. I'm talking that at some point, I just got this feeling that Marvel Comics, as we know it, is not going to exist anymore. That there won't be, you know, there will be still be comic books, but it's not going to be as, like, unless they're still making a crap load of money at it. Something can happen. Anything can happen. There could be a complete societal change and suddenly no one is interested in comics anymore and we're back into the freaking, I don't want to say the closet because going from the you know, previous part of the conversation, which may or may not end up in the episode, you know, I'm not trying to compare myself to that, but you know, we're going to be underground again and we're not going to be as socially accepted as we are right now. So, you know, I, I think this, but distribution is always the problem because how do you get this material into people's hands? You know, it, uh, 10 years ago, the books a million near where I work had five shelves full of trades. There was a DC section, there was a Marvel section, there was a section for independent books and there was a section for new issues. Wow. And then the bottom fell out of that market. And especially when um, Borders went out of business, if you go on eBay right now, any trade paperback from about 2004 to about 2008, you're going to find it cheap. Because what happened is Borders went out of business and they sold their back stock to people, and that's why Marvel trades are so cheap Hmm. from a certain era. Unless it's out of print, in which case people want God awful amounts of money for it. It's really kind of weird. Um, but now I go into books a million and there's two shelves and, ma- and, and new books. 
Um, the same thing happened with anime. I mean, a manga. Remember when you would walk into books and uh, like, uh, like like not books a million, well, maybe books a million, but like Barnes and Noble, and there was like fifteen shelves of manga. Jeez, yeah. And, and and I was joking about it with one of my coworkers because she's really into manga. I go, and there'd always be the one girl who was really skinny with a hole in her jeans, with her knees up to her chest, reading one, sitting on the floor. Like, I don't know if Barnes & Noble got issued that. Like, you know, when the new store got built and they were unpacking everything, they, they just, you know, like, activated this android that would sit there and read manga, manga books, you know, like in the corner. I don't maybe, – maybe I'm overthinking this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that would be weird. you see, like, the warehouse full of that? <laughs> With all these little <laughs> – well, Android anime uh, manga reading. I keep wanting to call it anime. Somebody's screaming at me right now. Um, so, bookstores aren't the solution. Comic book stores aren't the solution. Digital isn't solution. Walmart and you know they kind of carry comics because I can go into like the Walmart and buy Walking Dead compilations and stuff, which is what they call it, which really kind of bothers me. It's a trade paperback, people. It's not a compilation. This isn't an album. You know, <laughs> this, this isn't, this isn't like everything Led Zeppelin ever did. It's, 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 it's a section of a comic book story, but they don't want comic books because every bit of space in a retail store is worth money. And the only reason you still have like Archie books at the grocery store is for some reason that is still financially viable for whoever publishes Archie to pay Kroger and Publix and all the other grocery stores, the money it takes, you know, I don't know if people realize this, the shit you see at stores is not there by accident. It's not there. You know, there is somebody on a corporate level deciding where it goes because they want to make money off of it. And you can't make money off of comics apparently. So it's one of those things where I have no idea what's going to happen in the future. I really don't because nothing seems economically viable enough to sustain it. Like the fact that it's still around, you know, I I said before that I don't want to give comics, you know, like in five years, they're not going to be here. But at the same time, I'm kind of shocked that they still are. I'm kind of shocked that they publish as many books as that. I mean, look at all of the books that DC kicked out at the new 52. 52 brand new titles all at once. And okay, to be fair, not all of them survived. Uh, But still, that's kind of an insane way to run your business. So I'm wondering, and, and I'll pose this question to you. Do you think because of how much comics cost, should companies kind of scale back and have only... I mean, I guess Batman and Superman can support two titles, but only one X-Men book. You know, it's funny that this should come up between the two of us right now, because this episode is scheduled for release Tuesday, May the 3rd, 20, yeah, May the 3rd, uh, 2016. And in two weeks from now, I've actually got a uh, another one of my behind the headset shows coming out where I talk at length about that. But basically, what it comes down to is... Um, price, marketability, and I suppose to some degree distribution, right? And the the reality of the situation is that, you know, Disney and 
uh, Time Warner both have channels into which they can uh, publish. And I mean to the wide world, you know, they don't na- they don't have to worry about just maintaining distribution to uh, comic book stores. They can go wider than that if they want to. And so certainly, you know, there is that to think about. But, you know, a, a crucial part of I think the the problem I think that a lot of long long time fans have is that on the one hand we are manifestly the industry's bread and butter you know there are not a sufficient number of new readers coming in to replace those who have been here for decades right they're not coming in maybe not in sufficient numbers but certainly they're not coming in fast enough so what it comes down to, at least for me, is, you know, I keep joking that, you know, the Legion of Superheroes is done. Like, as a concept, it's done. So just stick a fork in it. The fact of the matter is that if DC hasn't announced a new Legion of Superheroes title yet, wait a couple of months. The dark side to that is, first of all, there's really no guarantee that the book itself is going to stick around. I mean, it may just get f- fucking canceled. Certainly that is a possibility. The other maybe bigger possibility is that this book is going to stick around for maybe two, three, four years. And then a fucking reboot's going to happen. And everything that you know about this iteration of the Legion of Superheroes is going to go away. Just so Brad Meltzer can bring back the original Legion or something like that. I have no idea. But I think all of that could be tolerable, to kind of answer your question. I think all of that could be tolerable to a lot of fans if comics were at least cheap. And mm-hmm. the reality is, if you're paying three ninety nine for a 22-page comic, or fewer pages in some cases, you're not getting your money's worth. I don't give a flying fuck up a running squirrel's ass what happens in, that, in those 22 pages. There's nothing in there that's going to possibly justify paying $3.99 for it. It's just fucking not going to happen. I mean, at that point, you're starting to compete now with a Big Mac, okay? Guys, you need to – it's not my job to figure this out. Comic book industry, you guys need to figure it out. And honestly, no one can – no one has been able to give me a rational argument why it is I should pay $2.99 or $3.99 or from the looks of things, we're going to be in 499 territory within the next couple of years, at least for certain titles. We're no already one, there in certain titles. Yeah, well, I mean, on a little bit more of a widespread scale. And I don't know. The I don't see any rational argument for doing that, you know? The thinking goes that the closer the an individual comic book comes to minimum wage the fewer comics you're going to sell. It's it's really just a matter of simple economics, you know? So what I advocate for the industry is, you know, basically it comes down to... It basically comes down to, to six words, right? Hard decisions have got to be made. And history and tradition say that Superman and Batman can support multiple titles. But guys, we need to scale back the number of comics that are being published each month. Hard decisions have got to be made. Um, 
basically what I think DC needs to do is number one, find a way to reduce the the individual cost of comics. And then number two, and I mean this on a per on a per widget basis. Number two, they need to figure out a way to get their entire line of monthly comics under forty dollars. Ideally thirty dollars, but under forty dollars. You know, somebody needs to be able to plunk down $30 or $40 or just however much and buy everything that's happening in the DC universe for that much money, you know? And that means that certain titles that are, you know, maybe they're interesting in their own right, they're fun in their own right, maybe they have to go away. And guys, I hate to say it, hard decisions have got to be made. And like Secret Six, right? Back when there was such a thing. I loved Secret Six. I, to me, that was that was one of the things that was possible to do with a DC universe that has a, a long, textured, nuanced kind of history to it. You could have a team like Secret Six, and I don't know that the current market can support that. I don't even know if the current iteration of the DCU can support that. But, you know, interesting books like that, maybe they're fun, maybe they're incredibly well-written, well-illustrated, everything. There may not be room for fun books like that in the new regime. And hard decisions have got to be made. You know, the, it, it it's painful to say it, you know, because you and I grew up in a time when there were four and ultimately five Superman comics coming out. Mm-hmm. And the idea of there being only one Superman comic book coming out every month, not counting Justice League, that's a little bit of a bitter pill. But, I mean, what the comic book industry, sooner or later, is going to have to accept is that it's not 1987 anymore. And this idea of having a plethora of titles about even ancillary characters like Deadpool, you know, where you have like five Deadpool comics coming out every month. I mean, does anybody... Does anybody love Deadpool that fucking much? You know, you, you gotta, you gotta wonder about that though. Because are, are are they putting it out? Because it's really, uh, is it really selling that much? I mean, when, when when you when you look at like the number of Harley Quinns that are out right now, I think there's like two or three Harley Quinn titles. Right. Plus, you know, she's appearing in Suicide Squad. You know, is that because Harley Quinn is really selling that much? And how long is that going to last? I mean, the thing about the thing about books like The Secret Six, or even like the the, the Batgirl series uh, that started up with the kind of the New Direction a year or two back, you know, they blow up and they're huge and they're all quote unquote everyone is talking about. But then you look at their sales like a year or two down the road and they're softer, you know, they have half the readers they had two years ago and so they get canceled and then everyone's like, why did this book get canceled? Well, it got canceled because no one's buying it. But if there are so many Deadpool titles, is that because Deadpool is selling that much or are they putting it out there in the hopes that it would sell that much? And my, my, my thing to that is you're going to have your bread and butter characters, Spider-Man. There's always going to be a Spider-Man book. Yes. There's, there's always going to be a Superman, a Batman, whatever. But do those Secret Six 
books serve, you know, go better as like once a year you get six issues. And it's an event. And they sell. Instead of having them be ongoings, why not a series of like mini series basically? Yeah. And and that way when the, the thing runs its course, you don't do another one, you know? Like, you know, the the fourth iteration didn't sell as one as much as the first first, we're gonna give it a fifth and then it's gone. Then those people that love that book have kind of a finality to it and closure, and they know it, so that if they want to, they can support it as much as they want, instead of putting all of the time into having an ongoing series. I've always felt that way about The Punisher. I think The Punisher works a lot better as somebody who has like a six-issue miniseries once a year, because there's only so many ways I can see a man shoot other people and not eventually start going... I mean, part of this. <laughs> yeah, and give me something else. Yeah, and he had like three, three titles or something like that in the in the well, that four, was. I guess, if you count Punisher twenty ninety nine. So yeah, jeez. Well, what a terrible book that was. <laughs> I I didn't even bother. <laughs> I even had a chance to get copies of it for free. Didn't even bother. <laughs> but you know, I've heard a lot of people say that Earth One, like the DC publishing imprint, Earth One is that's the future you know where you have a book that comes out once every year once every two years or something like that and you can market that you can distribute it in in bookstores and and by which i mean you know the few bookstores that are still remaining you know the the barnes and nobles of the world and you know basically brick and mortar outlets like that anyway so basically what i'm saying is comics need to become more accessible to to people, and I think original graphic novels are not a bad way to go. But uh, we've gone on kind of long here, so uh, before we, uh, I guess, say our goodbyes and everything, and we kind of go our separate ways, why don't you tell everybody where it is they can find you? Uh, Viewsfromthelongbox.com uh, is the home of Views from the Longbox. Uh, there you can find uh, me talking about kind of random stuff in the world of comics. I, I don't have a strict format like I do over on From Crisis to Crisis. Uh, Superman podcast, which you can find at fortressofbailey2.com, uh, and you can go to the Superman homepage, but it kind of sends you back to fortressofbailey2.com. So, uh, and also, even though we haven't done one in a while, you can find me on the Two True Freaks Network on Tales of the JSA and Comics Monthly Monday. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining me. This was a this was a lot of fun, man. I got to tell you, but uh, anyway, um, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. Now, as to next week, I'm going to be talking about. A uh, Night Rider episode, so I guess the Leylands may enjoy that. I'm gonna be talking about uh, one particular Night Rider episode, so tune in for that. I'm gonna do a commentary, but otherwise, uh, thanks everybody. Been a lot of fun, and I'll see you next week. Jeff hey Mike I'm trailing man it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time yes it is and we've been away so long yeah but real life and you know what I, I just I just can't do this can't do what we have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life I mean we can talk about real life getting in the way which it has but it's it's just not fair 
So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like Season 2 of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailitude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i put them up you can friend me on facebook just by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled t-r-e-n-t-u-s-m-a-g-n-u-s you can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me 
and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.